welcome to Ogilav Nanagus. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologist Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody at www.storyarchaeology.com. Series 4 Rowing Around Imrama. Episode 4 Imrav Kurig Mwail Doon The Voyage of Mwail Doon's Boat. The Isle of Women. Maildoon stood at the stern of the triple-skinned boat, brooding moodily over the glassy waters. His eyes remained fixed on the shadowed depths, almost as if he were searching for another of those uncanny underwater islands. A place to dream. A place to drown. Behind him, he could hear the clamoured activity of the boat. The voices sounded busy, cheerful, in spite of the muffled groans of the man who had been oh so badly mutilated in their flight from the island. Oh, his men would need his support, his reassurance. But he could not face them. At least, not yet, not while the rocky island would still be visible, outlined in misted distance. He would not look up until the land itself was lost to memory. Oh, but memory would not let him be this day. Uh, the sea was a mirror, reflecting his thoughts back at him in sharp, sunlit little darts. Oh, he couldn't even be sure that they had not just sailed away from paradise. So many wonders, so many islands had been laid in their sea path. They had seen so much unexpected beauty and equally much that was disturbing, unnatural, dangerous. The sea mirror reminded him of a bizarre zoo, seething with huge and hungry ants, slathering cannibal horses and fiery pig creatures. And monsters were not the only threats to natural order that he and his crew had faced. Things had warped and wavered, even as they had watched. Sheep that could be colour-changed by moving across a fence. A treasure-warding cat that had become a deadly weapon. These they had seen with their own eyes. And then simple things, natural things, sorrow, joy and sleep. All had become terrors on this voyage into the unknown. And then they had come by chance to this Isle of Women, and here they had met with such courtesy, sumptuous hospitality and warm welcome. Here they had been offered all a man could wish for, Feasting, hunting, constant leisured wealth without work and the friendship of fine women, worthy wives. There had been one waiting for each of the weary mariners and the wisest and best for him, his queen. This, oh, this was a land from the oldest of tales, the long-sought reward of many a brave hero, and here, like them, Maldoon and his comrades could stay free from sickness, grief and age, forever. Oh, if this was not paradise, he did not believe his imagination could encompass anything better. And then his men had become bored, had become sated with pleasure, until their arms ached for labour and the endeavour of the seas. Uh, for we have been here for only three months, and it has seemed like a full three years, they told him. Well, if you will not leave with us, then we will depart without you. 
he had sighed, but could not in conscience abandon his companions. And so they had sought to depart in secret. It was a dishonourable escape to sneak away like thieves in the night. And it hadn't even succeeded, for his noble woman had brought them back with a ball of wool that held fast, glued to his hand as he stood on the boat. It had reeled them in, whether they would or no. Now his companions had grumbled openly, turning against him, certain that he had chosen to catch the lure. For if you will not let go, then we are trapped for ever, they complained. Until even Muldoon began to believe that there might be a truth in their blame of him. Well, if you do not trust me, he retorted, when a second chance of escape is put before us, who will let some other reach out for the wool? And if it sticks to his hand? Oh, then cut it off and Maldoon had walked away in disgust. But for another three times three months, they had remained in that paradise, for the peace of the island had already left. Little waves licked at the hide coverings of the boat, and Maldoon looked up, adjusting his balance. The island had passed beyond view into sun-kissed mist. Yet, for a moment... He thought he could still hear the grief-filled voices of the women crying for their lovers. Now there was no land to be seen out here in the landless sea, where all men were landless, homeless men. And Maidun subtly felt his homelessness sink like a weight on the blood of his heart. It had been somewhere around three years now, and he knew his companions yearned to turn for home. But where was home? After the dreadful storm had flung them beyond the known, they had laid the oars aside, choosing, perhaps, to go deeper into that unknown where nothing was as it seemed. And did he even have a home to go back to? In that world, also, nothing had been as it seemed. He had given up the kindly court of his fostered childhood on finding that the tale of his birth had all been a lie. Now only one of the three he had then thought of as brothers was still alive in the boat with him. Well, he had told the three of them, begged them not to come with him. Their place belonged in that other comfortable world. No comfortable world for him. No, he, Maldoon, in arrogant search for unadorned truth, had uncovered the dishonour of his blood heritage. Oh, he had got to meet his mother, a nun, raped by his father on a raid for plunder and glory. He had got to meet his father's people, and heard the tale of his father's death at the hand of sea raiders. And this, this glorious journey, had begun as a simple quest for vengeance for the killing of his father. Oh, Maldoon sighed deeply and turned back into the boat. He had tried to be a true son to our little edge of battle, a man... He had never even known, but it had led him far beyond his enemies to sail beyond the edge of the world, and here he had found wonders, terrors, and truths, if truths they were, beyond imagining. He had also been given a new family. Maldoon smiled in spite of himself and moved to help his friends as they sought desperately to save the man whose hand had been sacrificed in their sea escape. 
in spite of himself he felt his spirits lifting as the silver mist fled before the strengthening sun. And he knew who he was. Landless man or no, he was a man with a story. And this was such a tale that the best of bards would be weaving with its words forever. So we finally get to what is probably the best known of the foreign Rama. Yes, indeed. The Voyage of Wildin, uh, which is in many ways, I think it's the Imrov par excellence. It certainly oh, yeah. has very full and rich descriptions of a lot of islands, even similar to those we've met already. But there's a whole load more. There's more than 30 islands in this three and a half year journey. Oh yeah, three years and seven months it was in the wandering of the oceans. Yeah. yeah. Well, we may not get to all the islands covered in this first podcast episode but uh, of, of, of Maldoon, mm. but we would like to get well into the journey if we can. There are some interesting interpretations, not only from Maldoon, but probably over some of the um, other Imrov as well. But we're going to keep those until the next episode, um, when we'll be finishing the text as well. So let's set out on Maldoran's track today and get as far as a reasonable amount of time allows us to yes. do. <laughs> but the opening, it, it, it's, it's kind of a contrast to the Ikara, isn't it? It is. It's not the, that fairy tale type opening that we found where it was all set in the dear and beautiful land of Connacht. Um, in fact, it opens with this bold statement about just how long the Imrov is going to take mm -hmm. um, and then a bit of background information about our central character. Well, wouldn't this imply that the story, or at least elements of the story, are already familiar to the audience? Um, yeah, I think it, it possibly does. Um, the introduction at the beginning of Alil, of the edge of battle or the nice edge thing. of conflict, it is a good one. This is Mael Dune's father now. Um, he's kind of introduced and then it just straightforwardly says, oh yes, and then he raped a nun and that's how <laughs> Mael Dune was born. Um, so, you know, it's got more in common in some ways with the kind of pseudo-histories, yeah, yeah. the genealogies, almost a Dinyanicus feel to it yeah. rather than the kind of once upon a time that we met in the Akura which is very non-specific it's just a king and a queen or yeah, a man sort and of a European woman. fairy tale exactly yeah. yeah it's interesting because we're back into the uh, characters go out and perform epic deeds and mm. things happen exactly yeah the first part of the story tells actually tells of Melduin's birth doesn't it yeah it begins with the raid itself. Yes. Uh, now, there will be two raids, but we'll start with the first oh, one. Oh, Tell us yeah. how it goes. <laughs> now, Alil uh, of the Edge of Battle accompanies his king, who's king of uh, this Oanacht of North Munster. Yeah. And they go on a raid into a foreign territory. Um, so, you know, this is your, your basic kind Cattle of infighting in yeah. yeah, and all the rest of it. Just go and see what you can grab. And in the foreign territory, uh, they make camp on an upland and it says the upland or mountain depending on your perspective is close to a church of nuns so a, mm -hmm. a female religious order and uh, that night when everyone has gone to sleep or possibly passed out um <laughs> alil creeps out uh, of the camp and goes to this church and the aforesaid nun the one who we know will be Weldon's mother uh, happens to be at the church to ring the bell for nocturne mm -hmm. and then alil catches her by the arm he knocks her down and, in a slightly literal translation, performs a co-lying with oh, her. Oh, well, that's one way, one way of talking, yeah. isn't it? 
so yep, that's uh, perhaps not the most romantic beginning for Maldon. Well, no, but I don't think it's necessarily intended to be. It, it has more of that sort of fatalistic quality about it. Well, of course, then we come to raid number two. Yes. I mean, when Alan and his king get home, then they're Turner raided. Yes. And uh, Stokes said it's the marauders of leeks who yes. raid. Is that the Vikings? Well, it's a bit difficult to tell. This is how Stokes translates a phrase which I would translate as sea raiders. Um, but the trouble is that there are large chunks missing from the Lavernahutra version, which I would consider as a, the stem, stem version for this. There is an entire page missing from the middle Maybe of this. Maybe it was got, got by the Vikings. Yeah, yeah, someone ripped it out going, oh, oh no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> But, and indeed, when it comes to the end of this text, the entire ending is missing mm -hmm. from LU, which is really quite heartbreaking. So... Like I say, the bit of text I have been able to get hold of and look at in the Irish, I would say it was Sea Raiders. Mm -hmm. But Stokes has clearly taken it as these Marauders of Leeks, which is sort of Leinster Viking, you know, so... Might have been taken salt. to be that later on. Exactly. I mean, it was kind of a major... They had a major impact on the text later on. Oh, they certainly did. There's no doubt about it. But again, I'm always a little bit cautious. I think you have to be cautious. Things, yeah. Or whatever it was, they said they burnt the church name named Dovcluan around him. Yes. So he's been got... Now, Now, isn't this all set anyway somewhere around the barn in North County Clare? Yes, it is. And there's still some kind of a monastery, I think. Not quite Dovcluan, but one of the other place names, Kirkham Road, that's mentioned. Mm -hmm. I think there's still an abbey of Kirkham Road. And this is all in the Burren, like you say, the north part of County Clare, nearly the Galway border. Yeah, it's quite a weird landscape out it, there, isn't it? It's like visiting a different planet. Yeah, in fact, it looks like, you know, when I first saw it, they was that great mountain, the terrace mm -hmm. mountain. I thought it landed on the moon. Yeah. Under yeah. the moonlight, it just looked weird. Yeah. Because, um, for various geographical reasons, mm. it, it's treeless. Pretty much, And it's yeah. got these great stone platforms. Yes. It is, as everyone knows, unique in Ireland. It is, yeah. Though I, I can't say it's the most hospitable or pleasant environment. It's not, but it certainly is very evocative. And dramatic. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting is that this territory of Corkham Road doesn't just incorporate that very strange landscape of the Burren. It also incorporates the Aran Islands. Mm -hmm. And I would say there's the little headland, um, which is very much kind of a, an isolated headland on the very on the west coast, is probably the nearest jumping off point to get to the Aran Islands. Mm -hmm. So very interesting kind of territory for to set a story like this. And it's like you go out to the islands and who knows there may be islands beyond. Exactly, yeah. It would have been uh, back then quite an isolated area anyway oh, and not easy to live on so we come to Maldon himself yeah now I think that his name also tells us a, a bit about the setup for this story um while is one of those words which I know it's as bald yeah it kind of essentially does mean bald but it also means something that's been cut or blunted mm -hmm. um and there's it, it's quite a common element in many personal names um, in Fingal Ronine, uh, the sun is Moel Utherty. Doesn't mean thick head, does it? Well, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, blonde head. Yeah, well, I think it can sometimes. Blonde head. Yeah, but there is also no. this uh, idea that it might uh, associate with the practice of cutting a boy's hair when he's seven years old. So mm. it kind of indicates that here's someone who's no longer a boy, he's sure. a youth. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm. Crop, crop-haired boy. Um, and then the dune or din element, it could be dinner as in a person. Mm -hmm. um, but there's an entire sort of alternate meaning whereby moel is also a term that's used of a barren landscape. Yes. And in that case, the dun or dune could be a place. So 
it's almost like in one word mm. you are saying the uh, Sean or the crop-headed young man yeah. of the barren landscape. Exactly. So, well doing. Yeah. The youth from the barn. Exactly. And it's just, yeah, it's all there. And in fact, there's quite a lot in this text where those kind of words are picked up and played with. Very dense language. Oh, it is, yeah, which we love. Actually. Yes. <laughs> what happens to Maldon once he's born? I mean, his father's dead, mm-hmm. his mother's a nun. Yes. Uh, this is possibly not the best beginning for a young lad. Uh, no, I wouldn't say so. Um, now, despite the fact that we've said before, being a member of a religious order does not mean you're chaste. Nonetheless, it's not easy to bring up a child of rape. Mm-hmm. And so the nun gives the child to friends of hers who happen to be a king and a queen. And the queen rares Maeldun as if it, he was her own son, along with her three natural sons. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it has this lovely phrase that they were all reared in oin chiev er oin chich agus er oin chrub. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. Now, it sounds lovely. Mm. But uh, Stokes translates that as in one cradle, on one breast and on one lap. But I think there's a bit more to it, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, that's probably the best you could do with a direct translation. But what's so gorgeous is that the cleave to start with. Yeah. Let's take the first one, in oin cleave. Cleave, it can mean a cradle, but at, at root it kind of means a basket or anything made of wicker. Yeah. And that can also imply a boat. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. So yeah. it's a coracle as well as a basket. Exactly, yeah. And further still, um, it's also used as, if you like, an image for a rib cage. Mm-hmm. And by extension, then, it becomes a term of affection. Ah, yeah. You know, like yeah, you have a rib cage. Yeah, exactly. Well, obviously, the association with the heart. The protection of the heart. Yeah, exactly. No, that's lovely. Yeah. So, so you could call someone, you know, I, he's my protection of the heart. Yes, yeah. Which actually is quite nice. It is, yeah, yeah. So that's the clear of the keek is, is self-explanatory. That's a boob. Uh, but the cood of which he translates as a lap, it kind of has a fundamental meaning of a cup. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly a drinking vessel and it seems to be quite a common way of expressing being co-reared is to drink from the one cup you know and particularly this oin chud so it's kind of a recognised proverb almost to say mm. you know they were so close they drank from the same cup of the same table exactly yeah yeah, yeah. no yeah. that's lovely and it again this that you in the irish you can hear just how beautiful and dense and rich mm. this language is. Yes. And says so much. Exactly. And I think that as well, when you have a, something that seems to be a stock phrase, that's going to have immediate associations for its audience. Yeah, yeah. You know, the audience will know, once they hear the beginning of that phrase, they go, ah, yes, we know, you know what how it's going to go on. Yeah. It's a repetition, it's a run. Yeah. Which is uh, what, it's the best type of storytelling. Exactly. Well, of course, he grows up, of, well, like you expect, it would be the architect or stereotypical young hero. Yes, of course. He grows uh, twice as fast as his uh, neighbours and, of course, he outdoes all his peers in every possible skill and accomplishment. As Stokes says, Great then was his brightness and his gaiety and his playfulness. In his play, out went all his comrades, both in throwing balls and running, leaping, throwing stones and racing horses. Well, we might not have had the fairy tale Once Upon a Time opening of the Ikara, but we are definitely deep into Irish mythological territory here. Yeah. Actually, I think the next section could probably label bits from other stories. Yes. <laughs>
So let's look at the first motif. Yeah. This is a familiar one. Mm. The hero child raised in secret discovers that his foster parents are not his natural parents. Yeah. This is being stolen away at birth by gypsies. Yes. Only yeah. the other way around. Well, yeah. Stolen by a king and queen. Exactly. Yeah. But we, he but, doesn't know that though. No. But it is very similar to the story of Mither and Oingus, uh, which we've been through before, whereby Oingus oh, yeah. is hidden away to prevent him, you know, the jealousy of of the man who's not his father and thinks that he's Mither's natural son. And indeed, the kind of the, the shock, the revelation happens in exactly the same way um, in this text here as it did to Oingus, in that there's a jealous playmate who sort of then loses temper and says, you know, oh, it's not fair that you're better than all of us when no one knows who your parents are. Yeah, and it's the same here. An envious warrior mm. winds him up mm. and just dropping, happened to drop the information that actually... You're not the king's son at all. Yeah. And yeah. he goes, what? Yeah. I'm not? So, yeah, he's naturally very upset about that and uh, goes off to try and convince his, the woman he thought was his mother to tell him about his birth parents. Yeah, he gets very upset with his foster mother. Mm, he doesn't treat her terribly well. Um, it even seems that uh, he fasts against her, or at least he says he won't eat or drink until she tells him who his real parents are, which is quite unfair. Well, it is, because she doesn't really want to dig up the past. No, of course not, poor woman. Uh, and then, of course, she has no choice. So the the nun, his biological mother, uh, she gets dragged into it mm. all. Well, unsurprisingly, I mean, she's loved to tell him anything good about his father. Yeah. And she said, please leave it alone. Just mm. leave it. I, you know, you don't want to know. You mm. really don't want to know your father. <laughs> yeah, but of course he insists and finally managed to wangle from her the name of his father and of his father's to us. Yeah, well, he doesn't leave it there, does he? Off he goes to meet his father's people. Of course. Um, that reminds me of another story. Yeah, it is rather. I, I was thinking of uh, the story of Bresh and Eru. Yeah. That again, when Bresh wants to know who his father is... and yeah, back in Moitura here. Exactly. He goes and pesters his mother, Eru. And then eventually she agrees and takes him off to meet his father, who of course is the king of the enemies, the Indechmach they don't learn. So off they go to the enemy camp. They receive him well. Mind you, Bresh took his mummy with him, didn't yeah. he? Uh, but Mauduan takes his three loyal royal Foster brothers. Yes. You know, like his shadows they are. Yeah. Well, once they actually get there, who should they happen to meet but Brickrew, of all people? Well, he's actually called Brickna, but it's, it's clearly the same character. Well, he's playing the same role. Yeah. And he's still called Poison Tongue. Mm. And he's still there, stirring things up, causing trouble and dissension. Yes, naturally. It's kind of an interesting scene because he's there, presumably with these loyal royal foster brothers, at uh, the old site of the burnt church of Dolchluan and they're chucking stones around and Brickna comes up and he said it will be better for you to avenge the death of the man who is burned and buried here than to throw stones over his bare burnt bones. Well who's that? Well that's your father of course that's Alan wow. of the Edge of Battle. And who killed him? Oh the marauders of the sea and you can only get there by boat. <laughs> Well, he's, it's interesting. I love the scene because he's already, they've taken the trouble, the storytellers take the trouble to tell us that one of the things he was good at was mm. throwing stones. I know, yeah, there's quite a lot of stone throwing. <laughs> he's going to need it later yeah, on. Yeah. But it's just that you know, he's busy practicing yeah. his skill with his foster brother. Yeah. Maybe they're flicking stones or, yeah. you know. And uh, suddenly, oh, don't do that. You yeah. know, this is the site where your father was killed. Yes. <gasps> dun, dun, dun. Pretty much. So, Poison Tongue then. He's pushed or initiates a story there. Mm. And, uh, yeah, and as you said, he tells him that you can only get it by sea. Yes, yeah. Which is not really surprising. Well, no, I mean, we are on the wild western edge of Clare here. In you a know. very is in isolated 
area just yes. then. You probably never got anywhere except by sea. Exactly, yes. What is interesting, I think, with all of this, it's very easy to tell these stories. Mm. And I think it's because it has such qualities of an oral tradition about it. Yeah. You know, you look, we were the bit you gave about the... The Oinchir, the Oinchir, and Oinchud. Are perfect examples of the, those runs mm. that storytellers love, the pr- repetitions yeah. that help an audience uh, to hold on to the story, to mm. follow the path of it. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah, it's it's typical storytellers work yeah and I think more so than the other Imova that we've looked at in the series it definitely has that quality about it right so off pops Mile Dune to go and see Nooka the Wizard oh we're up to see the wizard (laughs) please don't (laughs) even though this is part of the missing page out of LU Hmm. I would put money on the word here actually being Drui you know which is unfortunately usually translated as Druid which isn't much better but howsoever be it... Hang, um, hang on, you've been reading too much jokes. Yes, I probably have. <laughs> but um, <laughs> Nuka does tell them when to start building the boat and how many people to take with them and when to set sail as well. So it's the propitious times to go. Exactly, yes. And that's definitely the work of a filler or a seer yeah, or a yeah. poet, you know. The one who knows the correct ways and times. Yeah. The, the natural... One, the natural order, the chord. Yeah. 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 And we've met that plenty of times before. So, to avenge his father, he must set off after the Sea Raiders. Yes. Uh, maybe even Viking lands. Uh, yeah, it's possible. Again, I'm a little bit concerned that we don't make too much out of it because yeah, it, it, it is, is they, Sea Raiders. It's always assumed to be Vikings. Exactly, yeah. but not necessarily. I'm sure there were plenty of native pirates as well as the, the yeah. ones from the north. But, of course, there's lots of influence in later tales, as we said, you um, know, with, of the Luchlanach. Oh, the men of Luchlan. Yes. Like in the Fenian tales. Exactly. They pop well, up. from the Fenian tales. Yeah, they yeah. pop up all over the Fenian tales. And it does mention several times that they're heading northeast. It, it does, and that's suggestive. You know, so maybe, maybe not. Off goes Mildoon to build his three-skinned boat just as Nooka has directed him to do. What, same as Ikora did? Yes. I mean, that seems sensible. It does. So yes. who's finally gets to be on the crew? Right, well, um, in one version it says that Mildoon took 16 mm-hmm. crew with him, making a total of 17. And among those are this pair who are named mm-hmm. as Garmon and Duran the Rhymer. So are they important? Well, it's always curious when you have sort of, you know, a couple of names out They're of the They're not just red shirts, are yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, yeah, you might suspect them of being red, red shirts, um, and we won't give away whether they survive or not. But They've again, got names, they're all right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not, uh, not Guy, the crewman number four. <laughs> Their names, I think, are kind of curious, because in analysing them, there's a positive reading for each of them and a negative reading for each of them. With Germon, you have Ger being sharp, as in sharp witted and so on but it's also redolent of garon which is to complain Mm -hmm. um but in terms of it as a proper name it does seem to be derived from the latin of uh, germanicus which yeah yeah, yeah. which which means a brother essentially Mm -hmm. you know um so it's can mean both a german in irish um or just a brother like that and then with Duran it can have that sense of deer being right proper and fitting it can have a sense of dure which are kind of the leavings you know remainder yeah. something very unimportant and trifling but then it also has this relationship to word deorods which means a non-native freeman so they both have a connection with being foreign i think so yeah and they both have connections being something really positive mm. or something really negative exactly yeah so a bit of a mystery yeah and i find that really curious that there's all that kind of bound up in their names that you can 
they have sort of a similar pattern to them, you know? Yeah, this this sort of, a, you know, well, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. They're a bit of both. Yes, yeah, but they do seem to be kind of outsiders. Yeah. I think that's part of their nature. And even the number that go mm. isn't... Uh, as it's it were, not fixed, certain, no. Because there's an alternative suggestion that 60 is the number. Yes. Same as Snakes and... Uh, and Macrigla, yeah. And in some ways that feels both like kind of internal uncertainty within the text, but also maybe an intertextual relationship between Snakes. It's reminding people of the, the fact that yeah. there are other Im- Imrova. Other Imrova are available, yeah. 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 Um, but it also shows that the influence would go both ways. Yeah. You know? Mind you, I see it as a storyteller's comment. Mm. You know, well, 16 there were that went with him, although some say there were 16. Yes. Choose what you like. Exactly, yeah. It's that yeah. sort of comment. Mm. But we have forgotten someone. Or should I say some three? Yeah. Hey, what about those royal, loyal Foster Brothers? <laughs> well, they seem to have got wind at slightly the last minute that uh, Dune is planning this great voyage. And what, after Dune has actually set out and from the port, they kind of shout after him and say, come back, come back and take us. If you don't bring us, we're going to drown ourselves. Oh, <laughs> it's Sam when Frodo goes. I know. Come back or I'll drown myself. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. And that's what they do. They sort of plunge into the bay and thrash around, being unable to swim, so that Wildon has to turn the boat around and pick them up. And now they've mucked up his numbers. They have. This three brothers, it's mm. a familiar trope, this, you know, like the Ikora. Yeah. What about the notorious Turin brothers. Oh, yeah, yeah. Left chaos behind them wherever they went. And they're going to get picked off, aren't they? They are, because effectively they have broken a gash. You know, the the correct number has been disturbed. And so, yeah, you can expect them all. They're doomed. They are definitely the red shirts in this story (laughs) and they don't get names. (laughs) So, now we finally reach the Imrov. Well, not quite. Oh, right. (laughs) After one day's rowing, they think that they have reached their destination. They come across an island and they hear voices coming from it, including a very loud, possibly slightly slurred, drunken voice boasting about how he killed Alil of the Edge of Battle. And what's more, no one has come to seek vengeance for it. He's got away with it scot-free. Right. So they think this is it. They've actually found, you know, where they need to go. It's almost like they have this vision of the Grail, the ultimate <laughs> quest. <laughs> well, if it- it turns out to be a mirage or a grail-shaped beacon. Yes, yes. Anyway, we've already been told that it's an Imrov. Yes. And uh, not a voyage of vengeance mm. and that it'll take three years and seven months. Yeah. So they can't have got this to the destination. I mean, the audience would know that. It wouldn't yeah. make sense. So this mirage is the first deliberate twist in the tale. Yeah. Or just a bit of plot creaking, maybe. Well, uh, whichever way you read it, it doesn't particularly matter because, of course, at the very moment that they think that they have found their destination, up comes this wild wind and it sweeps them away onto the ocean. It storms all night and when the next day comes, they're utterly lost. And it's at that point that Wildon puts up his oars and uh, says he'll leave it in the hands of God. So it's now officially... And I am Rob. Yes. <laughs> Actually, I think he just gives up in frustration and disappointment. <laughs> Quite possibly. Yeah, and that's backed up because he just turns around to his foster brothers and blames them for the whole thing. Yes, this is their whole kind of breaking the gesh by coming on board. Ooh, this is your fault. Yeah. <laughs> this is yeah. All, you called up the wind. All of this, it's all your fault. Yes. And of course, then that means that they actually can't succeed in their voyage um, while these three are still on board. Yeah, because they've effectively broken the gesh, yeah. haven't they? Yeah, so we know that... Uh, 
said, there's going to be a long time before they can actually get there. As the audience already knows, three yeah. years and seven months. Yeah, yeah. So, and yeah, the brothers don't really have a response to that. They're thing. speechless. Yeah. What we need now is a fanfare. Thank you. The Imrov proper. Yes. Well, they seem to be travelling to the northeast. Yeah, um, that it's mentioned a few times, so that would be roughly the right direction if you're looking for the men of Lachlan. Well, the first island comes in view. Yes. The island of the giant ants. Yes. Actually, I love the description as they get to the island, mm. and it, it's described as they, they hear the voice of the wave against the shore. Yes. Yeah. It's nice. Island. It is. I think Maeldrin ad- identifies that. But uh, he also identifies that these are really hungry giant ants who just want to eat them and their little boat too. And so they just bravely sail away. And that's it. That's it, pretty much. <laughs> Do you get the feeling that the island isn't there until the morning in question? Well, perhaps from the storyteller's point of view, it might be a cinematic device, I It would say. be good, wouldn't it? Yeah. So, on to the next island. Yeah. Now, there, there is often a gap of about three days. It often says, after three days and three nights, they came to the next island. Um, it's almost as though like that's as long as fresh water will last. It's a sort know? of just in time. Exactly, I think so, yeah. Island number two, the terraced island of birds. Yes. Now, Mueldun goes and explores this island for himself, and he finds that it's mostly really nice and really delightful. There's no danger there, but he does find a lot of very tasty birds, Oops. and so they take a load with them. Get fed. Yep, and that's it. <laughs> island number three, the <laughs> island of the horse with hand legs. Yeah. Now I like this one. There's this beast on the island and he's dancing around. He's a bit like a horse and a bit like a dog and he's really happy and <laughs> a bit like Isaac, your dog, yes. on, on, you know, with, when he's got his toy pig. Yes. Well, uh, toy. Yes. Well, there will be pigs later on, but hopefully Isaac won't get them. <laughs> um, <laughs> but this particular um, beast, he seems, he's described as a happy beast. Yeah, yeah, it? yeah. He's prancing but around the place. I think what Mel Doohan realises is that he's not, not just like a, a big, soft, hearted friendly dog yeah. actually why he's happy is because he's really looking forward to eating them yes <laughs> and so, so once they, again they bravely stay away yep <laughs> mind you the uh, beast as they go proves male doing right by throwing stones exactly yeah which... goes down to the beach and chucks the stones after them yeah but misses misses the boat yeah so it's not as good as whale doing at throwing stones island four they reaches the isle of the giant horse race yes Goodness. now with this it says they see this great very broad, very flat island. And it's certainly made clear now that they're deciding by lot yeah. who goes to explore the island. Because it might be dangerous. Exactly, exactly. And it sort of seems to be this way of making it fair, you know. Um, but it's Germain who uh, draws the lot for this island. And then he makes a deal with his mate Diron. And uh, Diron says, well, look, I'll go with you into this island. And then in the future, when I get a lot to go into an island, you come with me. So they've kind of palled up. Um, so off they go into the island and they find this great sort of flat green space. But in the midst of it are ginormous hoof prints of ginormous horses. As big as the sail of a ship. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That is quite big. And then there's also uh, great big nutshells and various <laughs> other bits of debris that indicate that some rather large people like to come here and have a bit of a party. And this scares them. And so they start running off back to the boat. <laughs> But I love what happens next, mm. because as soon as they got back to the boat, they see a multitude of people rushing to the Isle of Giants, presumably, mm. to hold this magnificent horse race. Yeah. And I love the way that it's described, you know, because they they don't see the horse race, mm. 
because mm. they hear it. Yeah. Bring the grey steed, drive the dun horse there, bring the white horse, mine's faster, mine horse leaps better. Yeah. So he's overhearing them all talking about the horse race yeah, and yeah. shouting of it. Yeah. And I love the way it's described with dialogue like that, which yeah. is quite unusual. It is. It has this very performative element to it, you know. You can hear the sto- yeah. the, the storyteller almost acting it. Exactly, exactly. Uh, but the whole point of this anyway is they just go, ah, and run away. Exactly, yes. Giants, run, <laughs> pretty much. But you've got this, this theme again, things that are scary because they're out of scale, like yeah. the ants. Yes, exactly. They're terrified of things that are too big. Mind you, I suppose that's quite natural. It is quite natural. But then you also get things like the, the horse hound creature, which is not quite one thing and not quite another. Yeah, you know, so they're a little put off by this. Mm. Actually, you know, this horse racing, it reminds me a little bit of Gulliver. After all, Swift was uh, in Ireland. Oh, yeah. Well, he was the Dean of St. Patrick's, Patrick's Cathedral. Yeah. Do you think he came across the text? He, he might have. I know that Marsh's Library, which is attached to uh, St. Patrick's Cathedral, um, does have a manuscript collection. I don't know whether there was a version of so this in there. maybe. That, it could um, be. The islands of Gulliver. Mm-hmm came from uh, Mel Dillon. Yeah, or perhaps similar stories that were still current at his time. Island 5, the island of the salmon flap. Yes, now we'll explain why it's a salmon flap in a bit, but this is one of those times when it's after a week, and I'm pretty sure it's here that the narrator said that they were sick with the stench of the sea in their nostrils. Yeah, and they're pretty hungry too. Exactly, yeah. And anyway, they come across this island with this strange house right on the shore, Mm. and there's a door in the house that opens and closes, but it has a hole in the door Mm. through which salmon leap into the house. Yeah. This is why we sort of called it a salmon flap, and it seems as though the sea is pushing the salmon through. Yes, yeah. But once they get inside, they found nobody there, but it's another typical magnificent house, exactly. isn't it? The sort of house which has a, a four-poster bed for, mm. a curtained bed for the chief, and then mm-hmm. there's a, a bed for every three, before every bed, a vessel of glass and plenty to drink. And, mm-hmm. You know, there's enough for everybody. It's exactly. the way it's always described. Yeah. And presumably loads of salmon, too. Well, yes. You know, they, they're just being flung into the midst of the floor. I mean, the point is, they get plenty of yes. food, and uh, they feel a lot better. Yes, it's a little sanctuary in the midst of all this. This is an odd description. I mean, it it makes me think of maybe some kind of eel trap or mm. a stocked salmon pond. Mm. Our story describes them as just being flung in by the will of God and yes. by the sea itself. Yeah. Well, in, in these Imrova, it's, you can either say things are provided by the sea or by the will of God. You know, it sort of means the same thing within these stories. Yeah. So, but either way, it's definitely a... A gift of abundance. And of course, being salmon, that's also got an, the non-Christian connotations um, of wisdom and bounty, and the bounty of nature particularly. Well, they get fed anyway. Yeah, yeah, so that makes them happy. So we come to island number six, mm-hmm. the Isle of Magic Apples. Yes. Now, well, it was inevitable we were going to find apples somewhere At along this one. journey, yeah. Um, now, this seems to be an incredibly long and narrow island, possibly the kind where uh, a friend of mine's father said that you could set up a spaghetti farm, which he described as two <laughs> miles long and only two feet wide. Um, but <laughs> however long it is, it takes them three days to go yeah. past it. And uh, the island is covered in these wonderful apple trees and Weldon just reaches out and breaks off a branch as they go past. 
Um, and three apples grow on the end of this branch, and each of those apples will feed the entire crew for 40 days. So here's that old um, Isle of Apple tree that we're so familiar with, Mm. and and that give uh, wholeness and health. Yeah, and are sustaining. And of course, um, 40 days is a Christian period. It covers the whole fast, in other words. The days of Lent, the days in the wilderness, the time the ark sailed, and so forth. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's probably, again, a deliberate kind of nod towards those other... It's adventures a, in the wilderness yeah, you know? it's just uh, like a year and a day yeah. it's become 40 days yeah. and what I find is, is interesting if we look at these islands they all have this very particular very specific almost geographic feel to mm. them don't they yeah. I think it's because they're so well described yeah I think the description has a, has a lot to do with it and the, it's, it's a good telling so each island does have its own character even when it's similar to something else but it does almost have that feel of you know the report of a mm. great journey and it sort of leads us to thinking of the story of St. Brendan, the Navigator, uh, which, interestingly, is not classed as one of the Imrolf tales. Yeah, it's surprising, um, isn't it? It is, rather, because it has so much in common mm. with these, but it also has that kind of, you know, historical uh, verity to it, so much that Tim Severn went out to try and follow mm. that journey. Not that we're suggesting that Melduin is a geographic journey. I don't such. think so, but I think it has been maybe inspired by travellers' tales, you know, mm. by genuine travellers' tales. Um, but certainly the, the telling of it is good enough to evoke that It is, sense. isn't it? So we get to island number seven, and mm. this is called the Island of the Revolving Beast. Yes. And it is so bizarre <laughs> that I don't think I can describe it. I think I'm just going to have to read the yeah. bit of text from Stokes. Yeah. Thereafter, oh dear, I'm going to have to read Stokes' text. <laughs> I'll try and paraphrase yeah. it as yeah. I go. Yeah, however be it. Oh. <laughs> Thereafter, then, they found another island with a fence of stone around it. When they drew near it, a huge beast sprang up in the island and raced around the island. To Maldoin, it seemed swifter than the wind. And then it went to the height of the island and it performed the feat called straightening of body to wit its head below and its feet above, and thus it used to be turning in its skin. The flesh and the bone revolved, but the skin outside was unmoved. (laughs) Or at another time, the skin outside turned like a mill, and the bones and flesh remained still. Have I got that right? Yep. (laughs) When it had been uh, for long in that wise, it sprang up again and raced around the island as it done at first. Then it returned to the same place, and this time the lower half of its skin was unmoved, and the other half above ran round like a millstone. (laughs) That one then was its practice when it was going round the island. (laughs) That's weird. It's just hard to visualise. It's really hard to visualise. So either its bones and its innards innards are going round and the skin remains still, or the skin revolves. Yeah. Uh, and the bones stay still. Yeah. And if that's not enough, sometimes it's, it's the top half, half of it. The top yeah. half's doing this. And the bottom half's doing the other. Yeah, yeah. It's brilliant. It's it's one of the most wondrous descriptions from Irish literature. Um, and I think and the chap is even worse with Stokes because he uses such incredible yeah, words at times. I know. Tries to make it sort of pseudo-medieval, yes. which just makes it hard to read. It does, it does. And it can make it harder to follow, certainly. Um this is the point at which I'd like to bring in uh, an idea that we will explore more in the next episode when we kind of look at how to understand all these texts. And it's one that was read at a paper at a conference on genre and medieval Irish literature. Um, I will see if I can get the author's permission um, for posting a copy of the paper. Yeah. yeah. Um, but she was talking about the Imrova as like almost like a literary criticism text. 
and what it was doing was telling you how to interpret uh, different texts that you were reading. And so with that theory then, this Island of the Revolving Beast is like reading something where the meaning is always shifting around and when as soon as you think it's one thing suddenly it turns around and becomes the other and that it's it seems to sort of move very fast and be very confusing um but i think importantly as well that at the end when they decide right no this is just too weird we have to walk away they run away or sail away. sail away then the beast actually chucks a stone that stays with them it's almost like this reminder that okay look it might be difficult the meaning might be obscure but you still have to make some sense yeah from in it. fact the stone goes right through mother and shield yeah. and lodges in the keel of yeah. the boat and the fact that it goes through a shield yeah. into the keel yeah these are the shield which uh, is getting through your outer, you know, oh, that yeah. doesn't make sense. Yeah, yeah. It's got through your shield. Yeah. And it lodged in, lodges in the place which you, you actually use to direct. Exactly, yeah. Your the, own direct, support. Yeah, yeah. yeah and so. where the boat helps the boat to move the way you want it to go. Exactly, yeah. But this idea of it being a metaphor mm. for helping you to understand or, or plough your way yeah. through literary criticism. Yes. <laughs> sounds a really interesting idea. Yeah. And I, I think there's a couple more islands that we'll get to where, you know, I'll, I'll sort of point that out because I think it's mm. perhaps a good way to think about the island and then we'll discuss it further We'll discuss next it time. next time yeah. when, we, when we're concentrating on that idea. Exactly. But I think it's brilliant, that yeah, idea. Yeah, yeah. I, I think really it definitely do. fits this island. Well, they've done a lot of running away so <laughs> well, far. Yeah. <laughs> so far, it's just all been a little bit too uh, absurdist for their taste, I think. <laughs> so let's go. We'll come back to the serious interpretation next time. This time, let's just go on enjoying this wonderful story. Yeah. So Island 8 is the island of carnivorous horses. Yes. Well, now, the description is that, again, they come to an island. I don't think they land on this because they see these great beasts and they say they're like horses. You know, it's not necessarily horses. But what they see these great beasts doing is essentially taking chunks out of each other. They keep on biting huge lumps out of other horses, let's call them, and then running off with these massive lumps of flesh in their jaws, dripping bits of blood and sinew. Yeah, and they're doing it so much that the ground is utterly saturated with their blood. But then he goes on to say, it's an otherwise delightful island. (laughs) We had a lovely holiday. I just wish that there hadn't been carnivorous horses. Then it would have been lovely. (laughs) And then then, what's more, the crew begin to get miserable. They say they've had enough. They don't know where they're going and everything's nasty. (laughs) Oh, you have to feel sorry for Yeah, them. yeah. <laughs> so what do they do? They sail well, away. Yeah. Finally come to island number nine. Yeah. Not that far. The <laughs> island of health-giving apples and fiery red pigs. Yeah. Well, this is a really strange mm. island. And again, it's quite hard to explain. Yeah. But it's presented as a sort of puzzle they have to solve in order to get food. Yeah. A bit like a Skinner box. Yes, like those poor pigeons in there. Yeah. Look up Skinner box on Google, yeah. Right. Well, you've got... All these beautiful fruit trees with mm. great golden apples. Mm. And there's also these um, short red animals, animals a bit like pigs, yeah. that are under the trees. Mm. And uh, they go to the trees and hit them with their back legs mm. so that the apples fall from the trees and they eat them. This only happens at night. Yes. And uh, during the day, the uh, the pig animals yeah. live in caverns under the ground. Yeah. There's also birds that come to the island at night. Yes. And I got that right. Yes, yeah. It is really hard to keep straight. But essentially, when they first see it, um, those all those pigs are tucked up under their in their caverns during the day. And so they only come out at night. And the birds, it says, they 
swim away from the island all morning yeah. and then they swim back to the island in the evening. So essentially the island is empty during the day and right, both right. the pigs and birds are eating the apples at night. You have to get this straight. It yeah. gets very confusing. It does. Especially when they discover that the pigs are providing under-island heating. Yes. That when, when, <laughs> yeah, when they go uh, ashore to try and pick the apples, they go, it's oh, really ah, hot. Oh, ah, oh, ah. This is probably why the apples are growing so well. Yeah. <laughs> the crew think it's safe to go and take yeah. some of the apples except mm. for the heat. Yeah. And they go and pitch some of the apples, but suddenly what they've done in taking the apples changes everything. Yes. And stops them getting any more apples, it yeah, seems. essentially, because now the, uh, the pig animals change their behaviour so that they come out during the day to eat up all the apples, and then the birds are there at night also eating the apples. So the island's never empty. Exactly. So it's it, they've changed the order of things with this. But they've decided that they don't need to be afraid of the birds. No, the birds seem to be benign, all right. So they just go at night and take apples. Yeah, and they just take a boatload. <laughs> so it seems like a deliberate task of problem solving. Yeah. Like like a point and click RPG. You know, it is a bit. Going, right, I've got to solve this problem before I can get across the island yeah, yeah. Take, you know, without things jumping out at me. Yeah, and it's sort of about triggering events and all that kind of yeah, thing. A bit like that problem with the man with the dog, the grain, and what was it, a chicken? Yeah. It's that sort of puzzle <laughs> yeah, though. Yeah, can, yeah. When can we get, when we've got the best chance of getting out? Exactly. Even though it's a bit hard to get straight in your own head, I think that the time elements here are really interesting. That it seems to be that thing where the birds are going out for the first half of the day and coming back in in the mm. evening. It's a tidal cycle, yeah. you know. And then there's all this thing about a cycle of day and night and when is it best to, to actually go and try Tides and get this and food. times. Yeah, so yeah. I think that that's a large element of yeah. what they're encountering in this island. And it's yet it's the second island of apples we've had so far, but yeah. then they're two a penny in the other one. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, nothing to write home about. Uh, I think it's interesting, though, that we do have here some underworld or underground pigs. Um, we know that a plague of pigs came out of the cave of Kruachen. Yeah. You know, so that seems to be part of the, the role that they play in our stories. And pigs do often have this otherworld element to them, yeah, don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, sort of scariness of pigs. Yeah, yeah. I, I, they, I wonder whether it's because it's almost like they have this human quality. Yeah, they're a bit too close to us to be really for us to be really com- comfortable with them. Yeah, better keep them as bacon. Yes. Just <laughs> keep them as rushes and they won't attack. Island 10. Well, this is a good one. Yes. The pillared island of the cat. Yeah. No, I really like this one. I think it's a brilliant story. Uh, they approached this island, which seems to have loads of very white buildings and great white walls around it. And it talks about them being like as white as snow, you know. Mm. Um, and then there's one big main building that they all go towards. Yeah, it mentions <coughs> burnt lime. Burnt lime, yeah, which yeah. Is, so they're whitewashed. Exactly, yeah. They seem really whitewashed, which of course then would make them very visible from mm-hmm. the sea. Um, but once again, they find, even though it looks like quite a big settlement, there's nobody around. Um, and they go into this main hall, this great hall, and inside it there are four great pillars and leaping from one to the other is a nice little pussycat. Now, not only are there four pillars and a nice little pussycat, but all around the walls are these rows and rows of necklaces and gold and silver hilted swords mm-hmm. and uh, other very expensive other, looking yeah. decorations. Other nice bits of bling. Yeah, lots of bling. And they're sort of all arranged neatly in rows on these whitewashed walls. 
And then there's also a great feast laid out for them. I think there's like a whole roast hog or something like that uh, in amongst all this wonderful food and drink. And once again, it seems to have been laid out for them. Mm -hmm. And Weldon even kind of says to the cat, you know, uh, oh, is this for us? The cat kind of pauses on a pillar, looks at him and then carries on playing. Yeah. So (laughs) he kind of takes that as a yes. (laughs) So they all have a lovely meal and it's all very nice. And just as they're cleaning up all of their leftovers to go, um, one of Weldon's foster brothers says, oh, shall I take one of these necklaces with us? They're very pretty. And Weldon <laughs> says, don't no, do don't do it. Foster brother doesn't listen, pockets it. And then the cat, who's still playing on the pillars, suddenly leaps through the foster brother like a fiery arrow and burns him into ashes. Yeah, it's quite something that, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> but what's odd is the way that uh, they just decide, Meldon just then clears up his foster brother's ashes. Yeah, and apologises to, apologizes to the cat. And apologises to the cat. And cleans up everything, including all the debris. Oh, yeah. You know, take their litter home with them. Exactly, Only yeah. this litter includes the ashes of his foster brother. Yes. Well, I do love this description of the cat, that, that it really is very much playing um, but at the same time it is this deadly guardian if you sort of put a foot wrong and, and that's oddly enough what we would expect with cats exactly it? yeah we have said before and this is one of the sources the cats are like dragons in Irish stories yeah you know? they, they guard the gold they guard the treasure exactly mm. we've talked about the labby rock yeah, with... which is supposed to be where Nuder is buried on in Moitura yeah and of course, that has a local story about a black cat that guards a great treasure that's buried yeah. underneath, and that it. it's dangerous to go near it. And of course, we've met uh, cats that came out of the cave of Cruachan mm-hmm. as well uh, to give Cruachan and his his mates a fair bit of trouble. They guard the treasure. Kind of cute little dragons. But oh, yes. still dangerous. Yes. And then, of course, the interesting thing is in this story that the, the morality is not about stealing. No, it's nothing to do with the theft. That's not the problem. Mm-hmm. The problem is about order. Yes. That things have their own place and have to be kept in their place. Yes. And I love this, but, you know, they need to leave the place tidy yeah. as they found it. Yes. In other words, a sort of don't rock the boat mentality. Yeah. It's also not like ask about asking permission. Uh, in the Ikura, we had a couple of examples where even drinking water from a well, you had to get yeah. permission. Or taking stones from the beach. Exactly, yeah, yeah. That that had to have permission from the church authority. And in many ways, I feel like in the Ikura story... Um, God, the ultimate authority, has become this kind of Norman lord, you know, at mm. the top of a hierarchical tree. You need permission. God has joined the feudal system. Yeah, pretty much. Whereas in, in this text, um, in fact, God is usually called Koiftu, which means creator. And it is very much more that sense that you're experiencing the natural world and all its wonders as a feature of God's creation. You know, And you are part of it. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I think that's quite a different flavour. It is an interesting flavour. Mm. Mm. Um, now, we said that the necklace belongs where it is. Yeah. It struck me that, that could this be concerned with an issue of grave robbing? Mm. It's just a thought. You know, you're in an environment where mm. there are the, the, the past is all around you. Yeah. The cairns and dolmens top so many hills yeah and these all belong to a much much earlier period absolutely than this story is set mm. in mm. and i'm not saying that they were full of gold but there are mm. plenty of hordes of of hidden gold oh, bronze yeah. from bronze age times oh plenty found. yeah yeah and it may reflect a, a sort of way of reacting to the to these hidden hordes yeah i mean there's also this feeling that you know the place is laid out with food and it's perfectly fine for them to take food because food has to be eaten 
and mm. it's there for the living but that objects have a different kind of role they have to be in a particular place and perhaps if it's about grave grave robbing then those are objects that belong to the dead and so it's not right for yeah. the living to take and them. I mean right to that time and in fact still today mm. is this idea of putting votive offerings in water yeah they were usually broken objects mm, mm. Uh, but the bronze and the gold that went into water yeah, like yeah. the lot with sharp trumpets yeah, you yeah. don't touch things that have been given to the to gods as yeah it were. yeah and it, it's not such an unfamiliar idea you've only got to think of wishing wells yeah is there a, a public fountain that people don't throw coins Co into i know is this any different yeah it's a very deep reflex you know and i mean yeah. even that business with sort of the precious metals and so on i mean here it's all this gold and silver bling and jewelry you know and that in parts of south america you know gold really belonged to the gods you know it mm -hmm. wasn't for ordinary mortals i'm not quite sure if that's true of our well, no, stories. no, I don't. I don't think it necessarily holds true for ours, but I think there's there's a a flavour of that here. Whatever's going on, mm. what we do know is the first foster brother has been taken out. Yes, <laughs> only two more to go. And <laughs> only response is yeah. to soothe the cat and clear up the ashes. Yeah, yeah. So much for his loyal royal foster brother. Yeah, yeah. Island Eleven mm -hmm. is the island of the black and white sheep. And yes. This has always been one of my favourites. Yes. Yeah. It's another, it seems so absurd, mm -hmm. this one. But they, anyway, they, they come to another island, and this one has a uh, a bronze fence going right across the centre of it. Yeah. And there's this great herdsman with a flock of white sheep on one side and a flock of black sheep on the other. Mm -hmm. And every so often, the herdsman lifts one of the white sheep over the fence mm -hmm. and puts it the other side. And when it, he puts it among the black sheep, it turns black. Yeah. And then it'll take a black sheep and lift it over the fence and put it on the on with the white sheep and it turns white. Yes. Anyway, they watch this in surprising horror mm. and going, Oh my goodness, if we go onto this island, that might happen to us. Yeah. So they, they check it out. They devise well, they the experiment. Devise. What they do is they get a stick mm. and when they put it on the black side, it's black. And mm. when they put it on the white side, it's white. The, yeah. the stick actually changes. Mm. And they go, This is just too scary. Yeah. <laughs> but I think what's interesting is it's quite clear that they're not worried about the colour of their skin changing. This no. is nothing whatsoever to do with it. No, it's not the sort of black as we now think of being black or white as a person. This is to do with the absolute colours. It's nothing to do with racial identity. But I think that what is important is this fear that your sort of whole appearance, your identity can shift according to context. This goes against the grain. Exactly. That, it, you know, in natural order, in core, you know, things that are black stay black and things that are white stay black. Let's say white even. Yeah. Uh, but that suddenly in the other world, that's not necessarily absolute. So that natural order is mutable. Yeah, and that's the terrifying idea. This is the most idea. terrifying idea. Yeah, it, 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 mm. it, and it really is that your your identity is connected to your tour, yeah. to your people, yeah, to your lineage, your, your, lineage, your mm. environment, and that suddenly, if this can change, mm. the world falls to bits. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's really an odd idea that, mm. that, that this really does terrify them. Oh, it does. Yeah, what we found with a few of these islands is that those kind of certainties of time and space get changed. Completely. You know, that happened with Nero too, didn't he? Oh, when definitely. He, you know, with the, he goes into the other world and comes back with a branch that belongs to summer when yeah. his world is in winter. And they've already changed natural order in this journey, though. Yeah, they have. They changed the order when they took the apples from the island of the pigs. That suddenly changed mm. the order of things. 
And of course, then when uh, the foster brother took the necklace from the cat, you know, that, yeah, exactly. That was pretty extreme version of natural order. It's possible that they got away with the apples because the apples were always a gift from the other world. Yes. And they're their food. Exactly. And that food is there to be eaten, you know, so that is part of natural order. You know, it reminds me of a local story. Mm. It always has. There's there's an old story just down the road from here in a Mm. place called Gal, where there's a a ghost story. And Mm. it said that years ago, and I suppose this was, the story was, is around 60, maybe a hundred years old yeah and some young lad is coming back some evening from the from the local pub yeah and he comes to the gal crossroads and he mm. sees a woman standing there and once she's one side of the uh the townland boundary mm. she's all dressed in white mm. and when she steps to the other side of the boundary she's all dressed in black mm. and she goes back and forth from one side of the boundary to the other mm. turning black or white yeah. this absolutely petrifies him so he runs home and hides yeah <laughs> <laughs> and uh, apparently people for several nights afterwards, mm. people saw this yeah. woman. Yeah. And then she disappeared and never been seen again. Mm. That's a really odd one. The first yeah. time I ever heard the story, yeah. it reminded me of the island of the black and white sheep. Yeah. yeah. But I don't know of any other ghost story that is quite like that. Yeah, yeah. It's an inter- It's also interesting, of course, because gowl means a fork. Mm. Uh, very often, you know, like a fork in a tree, which can stand for sort of female genitalia, but also... A place where things become opposite. Yeah, you know, yeah. Where you get the split between one and the other. And it's actually right uh, on the edge of Shimur, yeah. which is a, uh, quite an interesting place in itself. Yes, a great yeah. terraced Neolithic hill with mm. cairns on the top. Yeah. But that's another story. It is. But it's, it's a good story. Yeah, and it definitely, I think it definitely shares the that quality of the black and white changing over a boundary. The bronze fence interests me mm. because obviously we, we've said before that bronze seems to signify a border with the other world. Yeah. And anyway, if you like, a bronze fence is an impossibility. Mm. It's too much metal. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, know, you just wouldn't have that amount of metal. Mm. So it must be other worlds. Yeah, and yeah, like you say, we came across bronze boats and bronze beds when we were looking at Inveralvina, which is, you know, another sea journey. It, it certainly signifies something extremely sumptuous. Yes, it does. Now, there's a slight health warning on this because the actual term used for uh, the metal in this text is of a... Uh, which technically would be translated as copper, although it seems to be a back formation from Kraydova, which is bronze. And because that's a mixture of tin and copper, they think that one element from the word then must mean the copper bit, the other bit. But I don't think it essentially makes a difference to the meaning. And I wouldn't trust medieval authors from knowing one rock or mineral from another anyway. It wasn't their speciality. No, it it definitely wasn't. I mean, in the um, glosses on the Ohm tract, they can't tell the difference between silver and copper. So, you know, I wouldn't trust it as an actual indicator, except as a signifier in the text. Yeah, I mean, you know, they they are not smiths. No. And smiths, the work of a smith, was a specialist job. Oh, yeah. Very, very mysterious. Absolutely. And they probably kept their trade secrets quite close as well. So it's metal. Yes, it's a shiny metal. There's far too much of it for ordinary usage. Therefore, conspicuous consumption. Yeah, so it must other be. Other world. The other world, yeah. Island 12 is the island of the fiery river and the huge herdsman. Yes. <laughs> I know you like this one. Yeah. Now, this is the one where the lot falls to Duron, and then Germain has to fulfil his half of the bargain and go along with him. So off they go to explore the island, and it seems nice. At first, they find a herd of pigs, and they kill just one little piglet, 
uh, for dinner, but then discovered that in fact it's too big for them to carry back to the boat. <laughs> giant pigs. Yeah, so giant pigs. Uh, but as they go deeper into the island, there's this huge mountain in the middle and they climb up and there's a river that comes from down the mountain and Garmon sticks his spear shaft into the river, I think possibly to test it, maybe mm-hmm. to test how deep it is, and suddenly the spear shaft is engulfed in fire. Here's this river that acts as though it's fire. So, you know, this is a little bit kind of off-putting. But then they see this giant herdsman and he's sitting with this herd of giant oxen. And Germain seems to be a bit of a lad. He bangs, you know, the spear point against his shield to make a big noise so that he'll frighten the poor cattle. You know, which is just, yeah. Pointless, really. Yeah, exactly. And it's so pointless that, in fact, the herdsman looks up and he says, Why are you frightening the silly calves? Calves? These are calves? So he says then, well, where are their mothers then? And the giant herdsman replied, well, they're on the other side of the mountain. And Garmin's response is to run away very fast. <laughs> I love this story. Yeah. Though. It reminds me a bit of the, the story of the two giants. Yes. Which I tell as uh, Fionn and the big bully giant. Yeah. It's really supposed to be called. And it's where they sort of meet and uh, Fionn pretends to be the baby in, yes. the, in the cradle. Yeah. And uh, Una says, ah, oh, come on, you get in the cradle and pretend to be a baby. Yeah, yeah. And it ends up with Fionn biting the bully giant's finger off. Yes, yes. And losing all his strength. You exactly. Know, which is in the ring on his hand. Yeah. But it's just this... Like it's out of scale. Thing. Exactly, yeah. And again, it's that whole trick of going, oh God, if this is the baby, what's the daddy like? Yeah. You know? But you know, there's some interesting, dis- you know, some things about this island. I yeah. mean, and the ones we've just been looking at, which exactly. are like a group of islands, yeah. where everything's the wrong shape or size and things mm. keep changing. Mm. And I think if it says one thing, it's saying, leave the other world alone, it doesn't work the way you expect. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we've had the water behaving like fire here. Um, and in this little sequence of island, you know, we've had things where scale is wrong, things are the wrong size, things are in the wrong place or the places where yeah. the time is, is shifted, you know. The time, context, yeah. size. Yeah. But they all are all about respecting the natural balance, aren't they? Yeah, they're about core, but the problem is that core in the other world is of a t- different order. And this know? is surprisingly fearful yeah you know it it really does kind of upset them yeah these are things you definitely should run away from exactly yeah because you don't understand the consequences of your actions yeah and that's what makes it really dangerous it's implying that they wouldn't run away from a herd of warriors yeah yeah but it's best to stay away from things that might upset the balance exactly right now Melduin and his merry band seem to Mm -hmm. move into a new set of islands yeah just a slight difference to them yeah but the first one's fun. It's one that turns up, doesn't it, in uh, the Ikora? In the Ikora, yeah. Well, yeah. it's very similar, certainly. So, yeah. The island of the querulous, hideous Miller. Yeah. <laughs> you want to go, ha, 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 at the end of that one. Uh, oh, I like this one. They, they, they find an island with a, a great and horrible mill on it mm. and a huge, quarrelsome, hideous miller. Of course. So, of course, they ask him, what, what, what's the mill? What, mm. what is it? You know, and he goes... Ah, you don't want to know. <laughs> you don't want to know about this one. Yeah. No, leave it away. No, I don't want to tell you. And what's more, it's not even the right time for you to ask. Yeah. Well, of course, being them, they insist. Yes. 
and he says, "Ah, oh, no, this this uh, this is where the corn, half the corn from your country comes here. Mm. And he says it's ground here, and it's all the grain that's begrudged is ground here. Ground here. Mm -hmm. And they see all the countless loads of horses and human beings coming to the mill with this begrudged grain, mm -hmm. and then they carry it westward for some reason. Yes, yes, it's all heading to the west. But they ask the miller again, you know, what is the name of this?" mill on this island and the answer he gives is he says it's Invertrechenen to which they all cross themselves oh, Jesus, Mary Joseph let's get out of here <laughs> and run away <laughs> absolutely terrified yeah. by the answer he gives them absolutely yeah um, as I said, we did, I did say, there's a crossover with the Akara, but yeah. the story has a completely different emphasis. Yeah. There's no sense of punishment for sin here. No, there isn't. It's more about a reflection on the meanness of presumably half the people of Ireland. Half the people of Ireland are being mean. Exactly. And that's a very big disruption in natural order because it's a failure of hospitality. And that's major. That is really huge. Um, and yeah, it's part of, if you like, the natural order, the, the core of our yeah. world and, and it's being reflected then in the other world. Now, stories about meanness go on and on and on. There's yeah. even a folktale about St. Patrick. You yes. Remember that one where, uh, you know, this woman in a, in a pub mm -hmm. is not giving a full measure of whiskey. Sin of sins. Yeah. And so St. Patrick himself turns up and tells a woman, you are failing hospitality yeah. and there will be a demon of meanness in your cellar from now on. Yeah. I have a good story about that yes. one, but it's a made-up story where the snakes um, chase St. Patrick all over Ireland and yes. he gets them out with a load of Guinness bottles. Mm -hmm. But that's another story. It is. It's also interesting that... Uh, here we have this grotesquery, this hideousness in the other world. We're so used to meeting this extraordinary beauty. Um, and in fact, I think one of the first islands where one of Meldon's crew went ashore, mm -hmm. he suddenly appeared really ugly and horrible Next in to comparison the... mm. to the other world people. But here, the other world people are already hideous. Um, and I think that that's related to this failure of cord. You know, that um, however uncomfortable it might make us feel, there is this connotation between beauty and rightness. Oh, yes, unfortunately. Yeah. If you're beautiful, you must be good. Exactly. If you're good, you must be beautiful. Yeah. And if you're not, you certainly can't be king. Exactly. <laughs> and that's part of what makes the story of Bresh such a great tragedy, is that he should be upholding court because, because he's, he's beautiful. beautiful. But, of course, as we discovered, his father cursed him with a name of chaos, and so there was nothing really he could do about that. No, he's beautiful and bad. Yeah, but, and interestingly, of course, we found Bresh connected with the harvesting of grain and so on, and here is a hideous miller who's grinding all of the grain that has yeah. been begrudged. Why do you think the name scares them? Have we sort of lost a topical reference or something? Well, there might well be, you know, something specific. When we were talking about Dante and yeah. the Divine Comedy, one of the great things about it is that he picks on, you know, figures that are known to his readership. People he wanted to sort of almost satirise exactly. for certain sins. Yeah. So or were known for such a good Absolutely. Sin, yeah. So we can't discount that. But when I was looking at the, the name itself, the Chenin part is, it's a compound of Chen, uh, as in a head, and Finn, as in white. White-headed, yeah. yeah. So Chenin is sort of white-headed. Now, there is a place name in Hogan, which is Natonda Chenanon, 
uh, which has to do that's the white-headed waves. Yeah. And again, I presume because it's a named wave, then it's some dangerous bay, some dangerous part of currents. Yeah. Uh, but there's another reference which I thought was even more interesting, where a Henanon is given as a, in a list of kind of sea monsters and sea beasts. Ah. So if there's three of them in this yeah, estuary... That would be kind of awkward, wouldn't yeah, it? That three is, sea monsters! Yeah, run, run away! away. <laughs> so that might explain their response. <laughs> so Island 14 mm-hmm. is the Island of Sorrow. Yeah. Now, we have met an Island of Sorrow before, but this one has a very complete description. Um, this time, it's the second of Wildon's foster brothers who jo- draws the short, short straw. straw to go and explore. And he's exploring an island where everybody, all the inhabitants, they're all dressed in black and they're all wailing and weeping and lamenting. And of course, as soon as the foster brother goes on shore, he joins in. Gets uh, stuck. Yes, he gets stuck and uh, is we- uh, wailing and weeping and lamenting along with them. So Maeldon sends another two of the crew to go and rescue him. And what a surprise, same thing happens to them. They get stuck uh, with the weeping and the wailing and the gnashing of teeth and what have you. So then Wildon is sending in a security detail or even an away team. Yeah. Um, I think it says he, there's four more this time. But he gives them the technique by which they can come back. What he says to them is that they must not breathe the air on the island and they must only look at the two crew members they're going to save. So, in other words, they only focus on the the familiar, not the strange so that's all around is them. Is he suggesting they hold their breath or they cover their faces? I think it says something about putting cloth over their faces. So, yeah, they're kind of holding their cloak in front of their faces. So they do this and successfully rescue those two crew members, uh, but they do leave the foster brother behind. Um, so he appears to be lost to He's them. He's too badly infected yeah. by sorrow. Yeah, there is this kind of sense of the air being bad you yeah. know that by breathing the air you'll get this awful disease of well of i suppose lamenting. he's a, a guest breaker so yeah. and we knew he was gonna have to go exactly yeah so it was kind of inevitable but the in- idea of infection being mm. passed through breathing yeah breathing the air is an interesting one it is you know and it's it's not it's not uncommon from medieval medical texts you know they'll though you'll often find references to you know bad air you yeah, know, and yeah. this idea that a particular place is, is partic- makes you prone to certain diseases. Yeah. But you know? here at least they've suggested that they filter the air, that they cover their faces yeah. effectively. Yeah. Not that I suspect it would work if it was infection. Yeah. But, but, I mean, that's better than during the plague years when people just carried little nosegays or oh, yes, vinaigrettes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. As if this was going to actually help. Mm. So there seems to be more of an idea about... Mm keeping out bad air yeah yeah but looking at the familiar is interesting because it is that's obvious you know, look at the ones who belong to our world yeah exactly and go and take them back you know but yeah it does sort of have that sense they don't even really mention the, the foster brother at the end it sort of seems it would be clear to the audience that he's been there too long he's too far gone mm, you know so mm. he needs to be left behind and everyone's expecting him to be taken at some exactly point. yeah yeah so this is as good a place as any to leave him the black is interesting mm. because the habitants are described as having black skin and black clothes yeah but again this is not this connection with uh, the sort of negroid, negroid. skin no it's not what it's about at no all. it's it's um the color of the color of darkness it seems like a color of despair here yeah not no. really a color of mourning probably 
probably. No. After all, the often the colour of death is mm. often this greyness, isn't it? Yeah, the sallowness. You yeah, know. The, the lifelessness of the corpse yes, is one of its Yeah, names, one of it? the names for sal, the, the organ letter, is the, the colour of a corpse. Depression, maybe? The, for the black, yeah. I think that there... I think I've come across reference somewhere to a black cloud or a black mist descending on a group of warriors and that that they were miserable. So That makes perfect sense. It does, yeah, the sort of miasma, if you like. Yeah, yeah. You know? And that, that really is a good description of depression. Exactly. So yeah. in other words, a depression mm. often feels catching. Exactly. Feels yeah. infectious. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I think that that's really what this is about, you know. So it's a really good description of an island of sorrow mm. and a state of depression. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. And the impossibility of escaping from that as well. Yeah, how difficult it is to pull people out of depression. Absolutely, yeah. So not a new problem then. No. No, God, no. <laughs> and once again, the second foster brother is taken out. Yes, so only one more to go now. Okay, island 15 is the quartered island and the cream, cream cheese maiden. Yep. <laughs> well, this in some ways is quite a simple uh, one, but mm. quite a dramatic image. Yeah. Because they find an island divided into four and you've got a fence of gold, mm -hmm. a fence of silver, mm -hmm. a fence of brass or copper, mm -hmm. and a fence of crystal or glass. Mm -hmm. And then you've got Kings in one bit, yeah. you've got queens in another bit, you've mm. got uh, warriors in the third bit and maidens in the fourth. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that's about it really. Yeah, it's very similar to an island uh, that we met in the Ikura. Uh, although the sort of the divisions of peoples are different. In the Ikura, it was more like, you know, the poets and warriors and the farmers and, you know, the sort of roles within society. Which is known elsewhere. Exactly, that yeah. System. Yeah, uh, whereas here we have something that's a bit more kind of almost fairy tale, where you've got your, your kings, kings queens, queens, princes and princesses. Exactly, yeah, or like a wicked deck of cards. Oh, yeah, all right. <laughs> yeah, it's not a wasteland. No, no, not yet. <laughs> Um, and then a maiden comes in and serves some cheese, which, mm. uh, oh, yes, yeah, this is another one where they taste whatever they want. Yes. So here you have like a cauldron of abundance mm. as cheese. Yes, in the shape of cheese. And we met that We've before met this as well. Before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cheese seems to be the wonder And food. I'm now thinking about that. I'm beginning to wonder whether that was a trick we missed with um, cloth room. Oh, yes. Whether yes. this cheese has a stronger. Yeah, yeah. A stronger. Meaning that yeah. we've given it even there. Yeah. Quite anyway, possibly. that's something yeah. else. Yeah. And then uh, she gives them uh, a drink, which puts them to sleep. Yes. And they're in an intoxication of three days and three nights. Yeah. Strong Pretty stuff. good. Pretty good stuff. Yeah. And Absolutely. Um, now, again, it's interesting to have this maiden, this young woman, uh, serving drink to them. It yeah. also says she tends, tends to, them. to them in their intoxicated state. Um, and I think this is another sort of example of the young woman, usually uh, the young woman of the house, the, house. the daughter of the house, giving both dispensing drink, but also probably a kind of sexual hospitality. You know. Yeah, it's there. In, mm. in, we found it in Brickroo. We did, we certainly at, did. Um, yeah. When they arrive at Kruken. Yeah. It's very clear. Yeah, exactly. And I think this is one of those uh, customs which mm. was kind of sort of minimised yeah, exactly. once you get into the early Christian period. Exactly, yeah. Or just kind of forgotten about either. That the the uh, innuendo, if you like, would have been clear to a prior audience. But once mm. the custom changes, then they don't pick up on the association in the same way. Um, but yeah, I think that this is another example of you know the pouring of drink yeah you've and, looked into this quite a lot yeah you? and the more I, every time i see it it seems to uh support that idea so, <laughs> so just don't give it soldier the drinks to <laughs> at the party <laughs> well i leave that to others thank you 
<laughs> well, anyway, yes. enough of that. When yes. they wake up after three days, they're in the boat. Yes. Must have been a great party. Yeah. <laughs> they have no idea how they got there, but uh, they got there. But they've anyway. got some interesting memories. Or possibly very shadowy bits of memory going, did I do that? No. Oh, no. <laughs> well, no. Did you? You, you did. No, oh, I didn't. No, yeah. that wasn't me. That wasn't me. You dreamt it. <laughs> Island 16 is uh, the Bridge of Glass mm-hmm. and Maldon's Woman. It's a really strange island. Yeah. It's not a big island. Mm. And there's a fort on it with a bronze door. Yeah. And bronze fastening. But the really weird thing is this Bridge of Glass, which mm. is by the door. Yeah. Now, whether it's some sort of um, drawbridge or mm. bridge... Sort of hum- the, humpback bridge, humpback or bridge or like that, that goes over a moat or yeah. something. It's difficult to tell. But it's a bridge of glass. Mm. They, they try to go up this bridge and they keep falling off it. Yes. So it's a genuinely slippery yes. glass bridge. Yeah, yeah. But when the, um, some woman comes out of the door carrying a pail, she goes up to the uh, up to the bridge and lifts a sort of trapdoor yeah. thing at the bottom of the bridge to fill her bucket with this beautiful milk. Mm. So you've got the fountain underneath the bridge. Yeah. She goes off into the fortress. Mm. Immediately, Gamorn, yeah. who turns around and says, oh, you know, look at her. Yeah. She's come for you. She's, she, you know, she might be one for you. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, the woman obviously overhears this and turns around and goes, ha! That Maldoon, indeed, she says, and closes the door behind her. Yeah. I mean, I know Gomorn actually says, a housekeeper comes from yeah. Maldoon, but it doesn't, uh, doesn't quite have the same you know, He's a bit. She's a bit rural, yeah, right? Yeah. She'd do for you. Yeah. Which is what he's actually saying. <laughs> exactly. But what's the word for housekeeper? It's actually fair thagus in this. Which, and that kind of, the fair bit is man, you know. Okay. Uh, but she is a bound spoil. She's a, another world woman. So it's it's an interesting one. Yeah, so but it puts her into a position of an important position within that household. Yes, exactly. It gives her authority over so his household. So she's an yeah. authoritative woman within the house. Yes. After she kind of slams the door behind her, um, the crew with Wildoon aren't happy that she's sort of gone off without, you know, giving them anything or giving them a satisfactory response, at least. And they go and they bang against this great big bronze or, or uh, copper palisade all around the fortress. But when they bang it, it makes a wonderful music. And that sends them all off to sleep. <laughs> you know, there's echoes here of the uh, apple branch yeah, yeah, that yeah. brings peace in Cormac's cup. This exactly, is one of yeah. the one of the powers of the mm. apple world, other world apples. Yeah, but here, you know, a bronze fence, yeah. a bronze fence is yeah. a, it's an odd way to get. You know, this yeah, beautiful yeah. music. The chimes, But yeah. nevertheless, the beautiful, beautiful music proves we're in the other world. They are all sent to sleep, and when they wake up the second day, as you might expect, pretty much the same thing happens. Out comes the woman, uh, the bounce coil, with her pail, and to go and draw from this fountain. And Germán again says, but look, here she comes. Here's Wildon's future wife. wife. <laughs> <laughs> this time, what she says is, it's a lovely phrase, Avra Briga, Maildun, which is a kind of a sarcastic phrase going, oh, I think he's wondrous powerful, that Maeldun. And it has cropped up elsewhere where it's very clearly meant sarcastically. So once again, she's given them the brush off and uh, slams the door behind her. And the same thing happens. They rattle on the fence and fall asleep. And it all happens exactly the same way on a third Third day. day. So you've got the three days, now we're expecting to change. Exactly. Because that's the way it works. Yeah. And sure enough, it does. On the fourth day, when she comes out, she's dressed completely differently. Now she's dressed to kill. Yeah, yeah. It's described as she wore a white mantle with a circuit of gold around her hair, on her golden hair, Mm. two sandals of silver on her rosy feet. And those sandals, by the way, they're called Mwailon. 
So, Interesting, yeah. So you've still got this rather dense language. Exactly, you? yeah, this, yeah. The puns in the language. Mm -hmm. uh, she's wearing a brooch of silver with studs of gold in her mantle and a sort of filmy silken smock next to her white skin. Yes. And again, the, what um, Stokes has translated there as filmy, the word is shrevthuk, I think, something like that. And it means sort of river-like or stream-like, you know, so it's a flowing silken a flowing silken yes. silken garment yeah, next yeah. to her white skin yeah which also <laughs> mirrors this glass river mm, mm, so it, it, yeah, it yeah. connects her with the environment the crew are quite determined that they are going to get Muildoon together with this woman and they say to Muildoon you know why don't you go and ask her you know if she'll sleep with you and they're being very direct this time but Muildoon kind of turns around and goes you know why don't you do it, basically? You know, it would cause you no pain to go and do it. So if it's your idea, you go and ask her. No. <laughs> you ask for yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. Well, they do. They say to her, you know, will you um, go to bed with Whale Doom and will you show him friendliness uh, or affection? Um, and she has a really interesting response then. She says, I don't know and, and don't recognise this thing called sin. And what she says is that she'll give them an answer the following day about whether she will or won't go to bed with Mildoon and gets them all drunk. She serves them all this wonderful liquor and all the rest of it. They all pass out in happiness. And on the next day, when they're expecting her answer, they find themselves back on their boat. <laughs> so so right. that's quite, quite a clear answer, I would have thought. <laughs> uh, there's some really interesting points about this mm. island and it's, in some ways, an echo of the previous island, mm, isn't it? Yeah, it's another development. But here uh, we have a Ban Scoil, we have a, a mature woman, if you like. And certainly I think Ban Scoil is usually used specifically of an otherworld woman, a kind of a, mm. a lady of the other world. Whereas on the previous island, it was definitely Ingen. It was definitely a young woman who was doing her hospitality dispensing of drink. This is... A much more powerful woman. So they were more likely to get somewhere in the previous one than this one. Well, quite likely, but only as part of yeah. hospitality, not as an actual alliance no, or partnership. No, that's right. yeah. Here they're looking for an alliance, not a dalliance. Yeah, yeah. And that's the whole point that um, that in fact Meldoon is being encouraged to make mm. an alliance with this woman. Exactly. Yeah. It's not just a casual yeah, flirtation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think that's really important. Mm. But there, are, it's, we're getting to the point now where you're getting, you know, sort of the rules of the other world really thrown at you yeah you? yeah one you can't court a fairy lover the fairy lover has to court you yes in other words the other world has to initiate the action yeah you can't go looking for adventure yeah. it has to come to you yes the adventure finds you yeah. and that's true if you think back to bran absolutely yeah. you know he is called to the other world yeah as yes very definitely several examples exactly exactly but, the same with nearer you know he's kind of called in by the corpse talking to him. You know, it's always that the start has to come from that other world. Yeah, and know. it's often an, uh, they make you an offer you can't refuse. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. But nevertheless, they have to make the offer. Exactly, yeah. Then, of course, you've got this thing about uh, original sin, haven't you? Yeah, and we, again, we found this in Bran, that it was very clear and explicit, you know, that in the other world, there is no original sin. Um, and it was very clearly original sin there. Now, in this one, she said the term she uses is peccats, which is a, a Latin loan mm. word meaning a sin. Um, and now, here's a health warning Stokes gives a translation, Oh, I've never known sin. That's not what she means. That's a little bit disingenuous. She's not saying she's a virgin. No, no. What she's saying is, You talk about sin 
and I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, that means nothing to me. That is a feature of the other world. Yeah, we've, we've talked about a... this quite yeah. a lot, haven't yeah. we? That in fact you're getting this uh, the pre-Christian world mm. and the mm. Christian world exactly, and they're you know this wonderful world under the ground yeah. that we found in Nero. Yeah, yeah, the world that is reached by going yes. to the ground yeah. is now reached by going to Ireland. Yeah, yeah, and it's almost as though you've got this uh, the ancient world that is not lost; it's yeah. just moved. Yeah, exactly. A bit more distant than previously but still you can still get there and it is that sense that it's a world from before the fall that was never mm. affected mm. by the fall you know? and it's affected the way people regard the so-called fairy law yeah absolutely. you can see its development from something which was completely real yeah there were just two worlds this one and that one yeah and yeah. they both you're either in this one and you're better off in this one yeah because that one it's the not rules really where are you really belong. unclear, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it's it's a very clear in this mm. one. But I love the slippery bridge. Yeah, it's a fantastic it's so image. visual. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, you know, bridge of glass with a fountain of milk underneath. Yeah. It's a new um, uh, manifestation of the Cauldron of Abundance. It is, yes, yeah. Yet another one. But once again, it's this source for whatever it is you want. So grail seaters, watch out. Yes, exactly. It may actually be a bridge of glass. Yeah, yeah. The other thing I think what, what is becoming clear is it's this constant storyteller feeling about the dialogue yeah keep saying it coming back to it but each time you've got this wonderful dialogue that's yes. going on which i can't think of anywhere that i've met dialogue quite like this yeah it's it's very uh robust you yeah, know and direct yeah it's very kind of characterful yeah again like the racing horses yes. earlier on yeah yeah now my horse is faster your horse leaps better yeah, yeah. and you've got this again i go on mel don't give yeah, me yeah. go on ask her yeah. oh, she'll sleep with you she'll, you can make an alliance with that one yeah yeah and, uh, well, he goes, no, you oh, no, no. <laughs> I'm not doing it. Yeah, and there's also that that wonderful uh, the turns of phrase that the woman uses when Garmon first kind of suggests that they could yeah. hook up, and she goes, you know, first of all, male doing indeed, yeah, Maria is how we'd say it in modern Irish, as sort of as if, you yeah, know, as or, if, yeah. yeah, or yeah, right, and then this great phrase, Avra Briga, you know, oh yeah, fierce, powerful as that male doing, and I love that when this has come up before. It's very clearly ironic. I think it's somewhere in the Time Bocunia. Um, so it's obviously something that is quite common for a woman to say if there is an approach made it that feels, she thinks nothing of. It feels really modern, doesn't it? Does. It does, yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's not a formal poetic telling. No, I it's mean, so it's quite different. different from Brahms. It is, and yet there are so many common themes with Bran mm. but it's the telling is so very different you know Bran is so poetic and so much of the the entire story is about these long poems the poem of the woman mm. the poem mm. of man and on and that's kind of the the meat of the story if you like whereas here it's so colloquial you know mm. you can feel it being told as an entertainment yeah absolutely yeah. you know and even that when they leave you yes know, go thank god for that yeah it's, again it's it's often translated by stokes that they leave the island praising and magnifying the lord that's not what they're saying is no it? it's that they're actually leaving going god thank god we got out of that one you know that christ that one's over right <laughs> Where next? <laughs> well, where next? We sort of meet another shift in the stories. Mm. This is a load of um, islands with songs and higher hermits. Yeah, these are all quite familiar. It's got a different atmosphere from what we've just had. Except there's one about uh, Smiths that really should have gone along with the Miller. It, yeah, it does here. feel like that, but it's it's after we meet a couple of uh, hermits. Yeah, So they must have gone round a bend and come back <laughs> Anyway, the first one is 17, the island of the psalm singing birds. Yeah, now this is quite straightforward. They see a loft, another lofty island, which is very beautiful to them, and it is full of 
dun and speckled birds who are all singing psalms and it describes how they're all shouting and speaking loudly. Okay. So <laughs> they're really singing their psalms yeah. loudly and shouting them. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Uh, it's the first time, though, in the, in this uh, text, that psalms are actually mentioned, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I think it's almost like, I feel like, an intertextual relationship with Ikara and with Snegus. Yeah, yeah. You know, that they're so full of psalms that it's sort of like, OK, well, you know about those other psalm-filled yeah. in Rava. We've got a bit of that here. Yeah, because it's got a totally different character from the sort of psalm-filled islands that litter the story seas of the Ikara. It's almost like <laughs> a herald of what we're about to meet. It's a, <laughs> Warning, Harry Herman's ahead. Harry Herman's ahead. Oh, sounds good, doesn't yeah. it? I like the alliteration. <laughs> Whenever would you turn around and say to anyone, warning, Harry Hermit's ahead? Well, obviously, if you're on an Imrov, <laughs> that would seem to be quite a good... Uh... OK, let's go to Island 18. Yes. The island of the Harry Hermit and the singing birds. Yes. So nothing much has changed. No. In fact, this one's really just a development of the previous island. Yeah. Because you've got the same island of birds, but yes. this time... You've got a hairy hermit on yes. it. Yes. Yeah. Only he tells him his story and he says he was out on his own in Rov and oh, his boat split and he got stuck here. Yeah. And now he's stuck on an island with the souls of all his kin. Now I was trying to work out, are they, they're all in the form of birds, of yes. course. But are they uh, the souls of people who were lost on his boat or what? I don't know. Uh, it, it, it does also talk about how the island grows every year in terms of there's like one foot of soil and one tree is added every year. That would seem to me to indicate that that's to accommodate, you know, his his surviving relatives that as, so they, as they die, their clogs, yeah, they, they come here. Yes, birds on the island. Exactly. Anyway, they're all stuck yes. there awaiting doomsday, mm -hmm. which is very Ikora. Uh, absolutely. And what's more, while they're stuck there, they're all fed by angels, mm -hmm. but they get half a cake and a slice of fish twice a day. Yeah, very important regime. <laughs> it shows that connection with the Ikora, that they're aware yes. of each other, doesn't it? I think so, and I think it also shows that, if you like, the influences go both ways, because yeah. when we've talked about the other Imrava, we've said how there seems to be, and sometimes a very explicit, consciousness of this, the Mweldun Imrav, yeah. um, but I think it probably also goes the other way, you know, <laughs> that there are, there's also this very, the very pious kind of Imrav, and that that's influenced our sort of slightly yeah. more fun storytelling Imrav. This one Imrov. is meant to be just, you know, it feels like it's meant to be entertaining. Yeah. And uh, certainly a new twist on the feeding of the 5,000. Yes, it is rather. <laughs> Five loaves of bread and two fishes. Yeah. This no. time you got half a cake. Half a cake and two slices of fish. Yeah. Of course, the, the reason that the island is able to grow is because this hairy hermit, we call him hairy, by the way, because that's all he has for clothes. We never mentioned that, No, no, we, we just call him the hairy, the hairy hermit. hermit. Yeah, we it's should like... have said he's clothed in nothing but his hair. Exactly. So we should have said naked hairy hermit. Yes. Oh, we nearly forgot that bit. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot the interesting bit. Yeah. So He's like, you know, does he live on juniper bushes? I know, yeah, it's very, it sounds very, uh, very familiar. Um, so, yes, this naked hairy hermit... Um, when he was marooned on this island, he had a sod of Ireland with him. And it's from that that the island is growing every year. So it's becoming more and more part of Ireland. Yes, yeah. It's neat, but he's the original wandering sod then. Yes, I think he is. And this is the end of his wandering. But it's also very uh, redolent of the story of Cullumkill. As I said, the original wandering sod. Well, yeah, absolutely. And that after Cullumkill's exile, when he was told he could never set foot on the soil of Ireland again, that when he came back for a visit, he had two straps of the soil of Iona strapped to his feet. 
um, so that he could walk around and not be walking on the side of oh, Ireland. Oh, again, obeying the letter of the law, yeah. that tricky quality of the word. Absolutely. Which we find in so many stories. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I, I just think it's definitely redolent of that. So anyway, after three days and three nights of hospitality, the hermit makes a prophecy. Yeah, and we found hermits making similar prophecies in uh, E. Cora. Uh, he says all of them will return home except for one. Oh, guess who? Yeah. The last foster brother. Exactly. There's still one left <laughs> to be got to rid of. Yeah. Uh, so, yes, he um, gives them their prophecy and sends them on their merry way. So straight on to Island 19 yes. and another island of the naked hairy hermit. Yes. But this and the time, milk fountain. Yeah, this time it's a wondrous fountain of milk. And this is so similar to the fountain of milk that Snegus and MacRiegla found when they were sort of all out at sea and needed some nourishment. Um, but it's also got some things in common with the sort of rainbow river that the uh, Ikura met, which would change what it did according to whether it was yeah, a fast day. Or it moved yeah. around. Exactly, well. yeah, yeah. And again, that was a rainbow fountain of yes. milk. Yeah, only this one is very specific in yeah. what it gives. Yeah. And on Fridays mm -hmm. and Wednesdays, it gives whey or water. Mm -hmm. On Sundays and feast days, a feast of the martyrs, it gives good milk. Mm -hmm. But on the Feast of the Apostles of Mary and John the Baptist, they get ale and wine. Yeah, that's the best ever. So <laughs> very specific. Oh, yeah, definitely. Once again, they get three days, three nights of uh, hospitality from this second naked her hairy hermit, after which he tells them to bugger off. And so off they bugger. OK. And, chin -chin. and that's that's for the time being. We've uh, completed the hairy hermit. Yes. <laughs> So now, as I mentioned earlier, we come to the next island, which is the island of the threatening smiths. Yes. Now, there was an island a bit like this with the Ikora. Yeah. But again, it's got that different focus. Well, exactly, because this was part of the Ikora's kind of vision of hell, really, whereas it's it's in a slightly different setting here. Yeah, it is. But I'm going to try and paraphrase from Stokes' translation, because mm. there's loads of good dialogue. There is, like yeah. The dialogue. yeah. Yeah, So um, they come up to the island and hear the noise of smiths hitting anvils with really heavy hammers mm -hmm. and then they hear one man asking of another are they close at hand oh yes says the other who says the man are these that are coming to the island oh they're just little boys in a little trough says the first mm -hmm. and when Maldun hears what the smith says he says oh let's run away yeah and uh, don't turn the boat but leave the backs of the boat the sterns of the boat facing forward mm -hmm. so they'll think that we're still approaching and really we're running away yes <laughs> well, once they row away with the boat stern foremost and the man who was keeping the forge says are they getting near the harbour oh no they're at rest says the watchman they, they uh, come not here and they go they're not there in other mm. words they're not moving forward but they're yeah. not moving backwards and so again he asked them what are they doing now says he I think says the lookout man that they're running away it seems they're further from the port now than they were some time ago mm -hmm. and then the mist comes out of the forge holding in the tongs the huge mass of glowing metal that he's got and throws it straight at the boat into the sea and all the sea boils but he doesn't hit them yeah. but they run away with all their warriors mightly hurried into the great ocean you know yeah. so in other words they bought themselves a little bit of time yes yeah by pretending to be rowing With this trick yeah exactly backwards. basically going into reverse so thinks that yeah going yeah. into reverse while looking <laughs> as if they're going yeah. forward yeah, yeah. Uh, it's you know it's interesting especially mm. the question and answer yeah it's sequence. got this very sort of 
I think, oral or folktale character of this, the same question, you know, where are they now? Mm. Oh, they're coming towards us. Where are they now? Oh, They've stopped. Rest, stopped yeah. Where are they now? Oh, they're, they're running away. away. Yeah. You know, it's got that lovely kind of oral quality to it and that sort of, yeah. you know, stylized question and answer sequence. Which you know? is typical of uh, what they call the runs yeah. or, or, or repetitions in oral st- storytelling, yeah. which gives the audience a little bit of a break mm. and allows their minds to keep up and also allows the storyteller to sort of be working on the next sequence. <laughs> yes. It's like little rest. Yes. But it's also, I think, to do with uh, expectation of form. You know, that there's... Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that, you know, once once you start something like this, they go, oh, this is, I know how this is going to go. And particularly that kind of rule of three. Which is why it gives your brain a bit of a break. Yeah, yeah. You're not having to take in new, new information. Yeah. It's almost the bit where you can join in. Yes, exactly. And that you get the pleasure of anticipation, mm-hmm. you know, and the pleasure of knowing, oh, I know how this is going to go. You know. Yeah. And again, it's it's it's, it's repeated signs of mm. oral storytelling yeah, yeah. in this all the way through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then of course you've got this wonderful trick. Yeah, uh, this is one of those great. You know, it's almost a Gabon Serra type of yeah. trick. You know, um, I think when we were talking about it, we were talking about the. the oh yeah, it reminds you of the Sherlock Holmes story. The Sherlock the Priory Holmes School. Yes, and in in the Priory School, the part of the mystery is that you know they didn't see any horses in this part of the the landscape, and it's because the horses were wearing shoes to make them look like cattle prints. And I think so, there's another one where they actually go backwards yeah. and forwards. You know, they're backwards horseshoe. Yeah. It's that sort of trick it to is. buy time. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Very absolutely. Neat. Yeah, it's a nice one. And, uh, yeah, I like the, the bit where the, the smith comes out and throws the metal into the sea and the sea boils. Yeah, and, again, it's, I think, something very, just in a very powerful image, you know, that he he's handling something so hot and so dangerous that it would boil the sea. Yeah, you know. and it's so mysterious. Yeah. Because you've got to remember that we were talking earlier about mm-hmm. the, the mysterious nature of the Smiths. Absolutely, yeah. But yeah. there's not the morality in this, is there? No. You know, the, the Ikora version had them, uh, the, the Smiths were being desperately punished for, mm. what was it, for making shoddy goods. Yeah, Because exactly. it dishonoured the people who bought them. Yeah, yeah. So there's nothing here about this being, you know, a particular punishment for a particular sin. It just seems to be part of the nature of these hideous... You know. Yeah, and these are these smiths are like more like fairy tale giants. They are, yeah. And again, fairy tale giants. There's three of them, they and often, there often are three yeah. giants or three generations of giants. Yes, yeah. It's quite common, and three questions and answer. Yeah, yeah. So you've got this patterning that you'd expect mm. to find mm. in a great many fairy stories yeah, or, yeah. Or, or folk tales. Yeah. We sort of shift again, and the next section is almost sort of geographic. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's almost like they've come into new waters, if you like. In fact, it says they have. Yeah, exactly. Because the next descriptions are is, not islands per se. No, we get. Uh, 21 the glassy sea yeah now this is just really quite a beautiful description of looking down over the side of the boat and the water being so clear that you can see the sand on the bottom of the seabed and beautiful big sea weeds floating in the current you know it's a very naturalistic green sand even the color of the sand is mentioned there's green sand yeah and that it is just sort of something that's very beautiful yeah except it would be pretty rare i think yeah. we wonder that if ever the sea was quite so clear yeah around the yeah. shores of ireland yeah it's I, not... I think actually i did see it like that once up on the coast of antrim after i'd been to the giant's causeway there was just one bit in the coast and it was like that suddenly you could see right through to the bottom of the sea and it was extraordinary yeah, yeah it's, it is unusual yeah so it's, it's not exactly the great barrier reef no it's not the great barrier reef but yeah put it this way around it these shores it's an exoticism. It's a, mm. a rare treat if the sea is that calm and that clear. 
Um, but it is just a kind of a naturalistic description. Yes, nothing like. more. Mm. And as you know, so, so Island 22, or, or Number 22, mm. you've got an underwater island. Yeah, But yeah. this time with a strange beast in it. This time, instead of just being a normal underwater sea, mm. it's as if they go into a new area where the sea is almost like a cloud. Yeah. And they're looking through the cloud down mm. and they can see the roofs of houses and there's sort of little settlements mm. and there's fields and mountains. It's a proper environment. Yeah, yeah. And uh, as they go on, they see... The these trees and there uh, in the tree there's a great strange beast yeah. who's absolutely terrifying mm. uh, and uh, all around them there's a herdsman with all his uh, cows cattle yeah. and uh, the, when the herdsman sees the, the beast in the tree attacks it yeah. he's afraid it will attack his creatures yeah. his, his cattle rather and in fact the creature reaches down and grabs one of the oxen yes. starts eating it yeah. at which the herdsman in his flocks or herds in this case yeah. not flocks run away yes and Meldon and his people, what's interesting is they're terrified because yeah. they think that the sea is too insubstantial to yeah. hold them yeah. and that they will fall down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They can't possibly sail over this. Mm. And bit by bit by bit, terrified they do until they've passed it by. Yeah, yeah. But they're really scared of it again. Yeah, and it's also uh, interesting that when instead of this great beast sort of disappearing underground as the, the fiery swine did, that it's climbed up a tree, so it's actually closer to the boat you know, there's all this. So it's almost reversal. like a reflection, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. On? Yeah, it's it's a bit like when you see a reflection and think of it as an under upside down world. You yeah, know? Again, you've got two islands, one developing a simple mm. naturalistic one, followed by a more complex yeah. and developed one, yeah, just yeah. as we saw with the hairy hermits. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you've also got this almost like as we had in Bran. You've got this idea that the islands, these magical islands, mm. are in fact below the sea. Yeah, yeah. And again, we come across that in Inveralvina and, you know, there was an underwater hints island. Of it, in hints of Turin. it in Turin. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so it's this very sort of curious idea that no more than when Nera goes underground and discovers there's a whole other country there, that there's the same idea that there's the same at the bottom of the sea. You know, yeah, this I, I unknown country, and probably gives rise to the marrows and all sorts of yeah, things. You yeah. know, in, in later folklore, mm. that you know, are under. Well, I mean, it's, it's very intuitive yeah. to feel that there would be sitters beneath the yeah, sea. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but I think it's more because, uh, well, they were under, they were under the ground or reached by going underground. Yes, yeah. Not that they were underground. Yeah. But the, the doorways the way were through. Yeah, yeah. Now, if they were, if you reach them by going down before, mm. maybe you can reach them for going down under the water. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. 23 is an island of nut lobbers. Yes. Now, this is where we're back into, I feel like, kind of familiar territory in that they see a great big rocky island. It's got high waves all around it. Um, but then there are people on the island. And as soon as they see the boat <laughs> approaching, they go, it's them. And they start chucking stuff at the boat, including a whole load of large nuts, um, to which the crew just gather up the nuts and put them in their boat mm. and sail, sail away. <laughs> There's a nice bit of dialogue yeah. where the islanders can't decide whether the boat has gone or not. Yeah. Um, you know, it goes, where are they now? Says one man who was, you know, shouting after them. Oh, they've gone away, says another. Oh, they haven't, says the first one. <laughs> Isn't there a bit of the text which suggests there might be a reason why they, uh, the people are so scared of them? Uh, well, it seems like this authorial kind of speculation it says now it is likely there was a prophecy 
you know and it, it's kind of like an idea of going well why did they respond like that maybe there was a prophecy that someone was going to come to their land and ruin them and lay waste to it and so that was so why. it's just rationalization exactly yeah i think so but you know it's one of those nice little glimpses of the author's voice um, going this doesn't make sense yeah yeah it didn't bother about any of the others <laughs> i know i know yeah good, yeah, yeah. good, good. <laughs> but uh, anyway i think that what this island kind of shows if you like is that there's this great abundance of food in their journey even when it's weaponized <laughs> you know, it can still be used as you know, provisions one thing that struck me while we've been talking mm. is that we keep saying that well maybe the food is safe to eat you yeah. can take the food even if you can't take other things yeah. you're not allowed to take anything else yeah. from the other world just food yet this is totally contrary to shall we say traditional fairy tale yeah. law yeah. where the one thing you must not do if you go into the other world mm. is to eat there yeah you know eat no sup no drink no drop mm. you know it's you're, you're not if you eat you're stuck there forever yeah. yeah and i know that may have a sort of crossover with the classical uh, psyche story oh, yeah. yeah but it's very prevalent in mm. all fairy tale law it is yeah yeah so here we have a whole situation where out on emeralds you can eat what you like yeah yeah Perhaps it's because they're half in the other world anyway. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I need to think about exactly. it a bit more. Yeah, no, it, but it is interesting to point it's that out. It's one worth commenting, yeah. though. Yeah. 24, the island of the Rainbow River. Yeah. Now, this is an island where it seems to me as if gravity has kind of switched or at least stopped working. It's a bit odd, so maybe you'd better just read bits from the text. Oh, like the revolving beast. Some yeah, things yeah, are just yeah. hard to describe. Exactly. Here it says, a great stream rose up out of the strand of the island and went like a rainbow over the whole island and descended into the beach at the other side of the island. And when they were lying under it, they could lie under the stream without being wet. Yes. And uh, they were piercing it with their spears. They were sort of pushing their spears up into the rainbow. And enormous salmon were tumbling from above out of the stream on the soil of the island. And all the island was full of the stench of the fish. For there was no one who could finish gathering them because of their abundance. <laughs> from Sunday evening to Monday morning, the stream did not move but remained at rest in its sea around the island. Mm. What do you make of that? Uh, well, it does sound as though this river is going overhead for most of the week, but it takes a wee break between Sunday evening and Monday morning. It just lies down. It goes back to be a sort of uh, current around yeah, the island. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. You know, we had the glass bridge, yeah. we have, we've had rainbow rivers, mm. and we've had arches of arched fountains yeah so this is an idea which reoccurs yeah yeah i don't know who thought of it it's a weird idea yeah but it's obviously some sort of image that is is recognizable and yeah. um you know understandable yeah you know, it's acknowledged it's one of the calendar yeah of the calendar yeah yeah of, of an image something you're likely to meet on, on an, an imbrol yes yeah, yeah exactly. but interesting again the the, the the difference is that it's nothing to do with christian morality and fasting yeah. and feasting exactly. this is definitely the non kayla day version yeah yeah i would say so yeah. Uh, and even to the point of this wonderful image of the they're poking the yeah. river with a spear <laughs> and the fish just fall, fall out as yeah. if they're making holes in it. Exactly, yeah. So yeah. as if the river is some sort of plastic tube and as they poke <laughs> it, the fish just fall, fall out. out. Yeah, exactly. But not the water. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, just the fish. it's disobeying all the rules of physics. Exactly, yeah, yes. And uh, but they say so many fish fall out of the river that the island stinks. <laughs> yes. So the <laughs> the storyteller is even thinking in terms of the smell. Yeah, yeah. He's evoking a, a stronger atmosphere using yeah. smell. Which he, he did before when he said I think they'd been a week at sea and their nostrils were full of the yeah. stench of the sea. He really yeah. does use all the senses. Yeah. He talks about the sounds of things yeah. and the smell 
smells of things yeah, yeah. and the tastes of mm, things. Mm. Um, yeah, it is, yeah. it is good. And, and again, we have this food that's just really easy. It's so easy to catch that it literally falls out of the sky. You know, yes, the, raining the, fish. Yeah, <laughs> hallelujah. We come to Island 25, the pillar of the silver net. Yeah. Uh, and this is a very striking image and one it we've is. sort of met before. We have, and we met it in the Ikura. And when we met it in the Ikura, it says... This is the same thing that Muildoon encountered on his Imrov. So this is... Definite what, reference. Exactly, this is what it's referring to. And it is this wondrous description of this sort of four-sided pillar that reaches very, very high up into the sky and this enormous silver mesh or net that reaches from the top of the pillar and obviously kind of goes down into the sea. Yeah, quite an architectural wonder, I It think. is. I think Muildoon makes a comment about how wondrous... The people who made this must yeah, have been, yeah. you know, that it's this great demonstration of skill. Um, but also what we get here that we didn't get from Ikura is that the scale is such that they can sail through one single mesh of the so net. So it's given, again, this massive Yeah, this huge size. scale. Yeah, mm. yeah. And uh, Diron the Rhymer this time, he reaches out to break off a bit of the net um, sort of, he says that so that people will believe them mm. when they go back home. Same as the Ikara did. Exactly, yeah. So he's, he's trying to get that bit of evidence. Mildon says that he shouldn't damage it. And I think that's when he says, you know, this was obviously made by very mm. advanced technology, mm. you know. Um, and there is a sort of voice of warning that comes from the top of the pillar or, you know, some kind of big booming voice. Though they can't understand its language, which is very interesting. Um, I think that Duron kind of tries to placate it by saying that the ounce and a half of silver that he's got from the net will go on to the altar at Armagh. Is it two, out, two and a half? Oh, two yeah, and a half yeah ounces. two and a half ounces. Not, sorry, I'm, I'm under So they get a warning, mm. but they don't seem to be punished. No. But even though they're taking something which is not food. Yeah, yeah. And the Cora managed to take a piece as well. So, yes. you know, it's this is something that... It's sort of like they're meeting aliens in space. Isn't, isn't it? it? Yeah, yeah, Actively totally. getting sort of the five-year mission. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, just sort of going... Ongoing mission! Yeah, but again, it's... it's... Our three-year mission! <laughs> <laughs> Three-year, seven-month mission to explore new worlds. Yeah. It's a bit like the way that Nera is given the flowering branch to bring back, to mm-hmm. demonstrate that he has been somewhere wondrous except that he's given that yes exactly Here they're yeah. taking it yeah so and that seems to be the dangerous thing you mm. have to be given you can't take yeah yeah so it yeah that might be then why duron says oh it's not for me it's not for me i'm going to give yeah. it to the church of Armagh. you know so i don't know it is a curious one though and it's just such a, a strong image anyway we can go yeah. straight on because the next one 26 is another island on a pillar. Yeah. But this time, uh, it's interesting because we go from the more complex to the simpler. Yes. This time, it's the other way around. Mm. Because this is a simple, huge four-sided pillar. Mm. And as they sail up to it, they see a door in the side, but yeah. the door is locked. Mm. They can't get in. Mm. And they can this time, they can see people above them on the island, which is built on the pillar. Mm. Uh, but they can't talk to them. Yes, yeah. It just says they don't converse. Mm. So it either means that they can't understand them yeah. or they just can't. Or they're too far away. Too far yeah, way. yeah. So again, there's this kind of sense of something that is inaccessible, alien, foreign to It's them. alien that you feel, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it yeah. is, you know, suddenly for the first time I'm coming up with, in my head, is something in space. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's just the fact that this is such a, these two islands, they're so striking. Yeah, and, yeah. And uh, just not what you expect to see in the sea. Exactly. Very surreal. Yes, it is, it is. And I think it also says that, you know, that this pillar is so high that they don't know where it ends and that so goes down so far into the sea they can't see its bottom. So again, it seems to be this sort of impossible 
feat of engineering, you know. And again, very counterintuitive that you would go in through a door to get to an island. So now we come to Island 27, the mm. island of women. Yeah. And in many ways, this is one of the most important islands in the whole of this tale, isn't it? I think it is. And we did meet it before, of course, most notably with Bran. But it also represents, if you like, the journey of so many other world adventures. From you know, Oisin, like, going to yeah. or uh, Cormac. Mm. But it's just this destination, this mm. place of women. Yeah. It's kind of central. It is. This version, it really stands up as a story in its own right. Uh, we probably can't do it justice uh, in the time that we have, but the whole text will be available eventually, I promise, on the blog. Sooner rather than later, please. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what I'll do is... Can we just put a link anyway to the I'll put up a link to Stokes's translations, uh, as long as you take those health warnings into account, please, listeners. Um, But yeah, I'll put up a link to Stokes's translation so you can go through it in all its detail, because it is great, and the descriptions are wonderful. So we'll try and give you an idea of the island here. So they're approaching this island, and they see 17 girls, and those girls are preparing a bath on this island and as they approach Maeldun himself says it seems to me that that bath has been prepared for us <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah that's after they landed on the island I yes think, yeah, yeah. so they're, they're la- sitting on a hillock they're, yes they're sitting perched up on a hillock and watching what the girls are doing yeah and thinking oh that must be for us which is slightly presumptuous but never mind they then see another figure approaching them and this is a, a very fine woman and says she's on a racehorse mm-hmm. and once again we get one of these great descriptions yeah, of how she, she's kitted out she's wearing this highly decorative uh, horse cloth under her seat and a, a beautiful blue hood and a bordered purple cloak and she's got gloves with gold embroidery and feet with sort of decorative sandals yeah on, uh, or, or decorative sandals on her feet mm. and when she gets off this racehorse one of the girls rushes up to take the horse yes it's again she's a really high status woman oh very clearly so the description of the welcome that they get from these girls it's worthy of something out of Fledfrickrin you know it's that absolute perfect hospitality yeah yeah there's you know a platter for every three of them and there's good food and good drink Uh, there is of course a woman for every man of them 17 canopy beds yes and of course yeah with the woman comes the bed this time they get a bed each they do have a bed each no usually it's a bed for three and a plate for three but this time it's a bed each yeah exactly Canopied bed each. Yeah, so that it's, means it's a bed of a king yeah, each. Yeah, yeah, it's gone quite fancy, all right. Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly, there are seventeen girls and a queen, and of course, Maeldun is paired off with the queen. But that means there's one for each of them, even though the last foster brother's still with them. I thought that was kind of curious. So he doesn't get left out. No, he doesn't. <laughs> Otherwise, he might have got and a bit cross. Again, they're told that they can stay, and while they're there, they will not meet age or sickness. Yeah. So they're definitely in the other world. Oh yeah, this is straight out of Tyrion. An oak. Yeah. yeah, this is lovely. Mm. And then, of course, Maldon asks, "Well, how did you get here? Yeah. Where do you come from?" Yeah, wants to know their story. Um, and what the Queen tells him is that once upon a time, in this island, there was a very good man, and that man was the king. And she married the king, and they had their seventeen beautiful daughters. And she's still beautiful. 
Oh, yeah. Amazing. I know. Well, this is the other world, you know. Um, they meet neither age nor death, remember? So the, the king dies and he hasn't left a male heir. And so the queen takes over the running of the island. She mm. says she takes the kingship. And as part of this, she goes into a great plain of the island every day and she performs judgments for the people. So she is really central. She is yeah. the great judge. Yes, exactly. Which is the highest uh, role of kingship. Exactly, yeah. So she's judging and she's arbitrating on their mm. disputes. Mildew, he says, well, well, why do you have to go today? I mean, it was really great last night. Can't you stay for a day? Yeah. Take a day off. Yeah, exactly. And interestingly, what she replies is that if she doesn't go and do her job, if she doesn't go and fulfil her obligation to the people of the island, she won't be able to come back and all have a lovely, very cosy evening together afterwards. And so she says, I'm going now for your sake. So she's going to fulfil her obligation so that she can come back to my old Yeah, room. and they can all stay together, exactly. him and his, his mates. And yeah, yeah. You know, the, all the lot of them could go and enjoy themselves. Yeah, yeah. It seems like a pretty nice setup. And she tells me he doesn't have to do any work at yeah, all, does she? that's the nice thing. She says, you just stay here, you will never have to work again. I'll go off and do the judging and uh, we'll take care of all your needs and all your wants. Wow. Yeah. They've really landed in the other world, haven't they? Yeah, on their feet. And definitely. so they abode in that island for the three months of winter. And it seemed to them that those three months were three years. Yeah. Something's gone wrong. Yeah. I mean, you read that, you expect it to be. So they abode there and it seemed like three, three months, months were three days. Yeah, yeah. And it says it seems like three months were three years. Yeah, yeah. That suddenly the time drags. Mm, there's an inversion going on and we'll meet even more of that inversion now. This is not what you'd expect yeah. from another world encounter. Exactly. It's supposed to make time, you know, time is altered, yeah. but it's the wrong way. Yeah, yeah. They're bored. Mm. You know, they can't sit around and do nothing. Yes. <laughs> well, after these very long three months, uh, the crew are all getting a little bit restless and they want to leave. They want to either continue their journey or they want to get back home. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, now they are complaining about Weldon's relationship with this woman. It's a total contrast to the woman with the I bridge of yeah, with the bridge of glass, where they're all kind of encouraging and egging him on and going, "This would make a good wife for." you this she would make a good wife yeah 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 <laughs> i very much feel like this is the third that yeah. started with the quartered island and the cream cheese maiden then we got the woman with her pail and the bridge of glass this is like the fulfillment of that yeah and now they don't want it yeah suddenly they want to get away Weldon does say he'll go with them after they say look if you want to stay with her you stay we're going so he doesn't want to abandon his crew um, however he feels about the woman. So he agrees to try and escape with them. So she's off doing her work one day and uh, they try to just sail away. But the woman sees them trying to escape and comes down to the bay and she throws at them a sticky ball of wool. And we've met that before. We certainly have. This is the ball of wool that brought that allowed Bran to land on the island of women. Yes. He couldn't land, but the, she threw the ball of wool, yeah. which guided them, them in. in. Now, this time, the ball of wool is being used to kind of ensnare them and draw them back against their will. It, to prevent them from leaving rather than inviting them to stay. So once again, we've got this strange inversion mm. of a very familiar image. And they're left trapped. Yeah, they have to stay there. And uh, it says 
for another three times three months. Now that's an interesting number because yeah. obviously the three threes, mm. which we've got now, the three months, three months and three months, yeah. and then the fourth three months, Yes. if you add up the first one, mm. A, that's like nine months plus three, but yeah. you've got the sort of pregnancy months, you mm-hmm. which is a completion in itself, yeah. but they add up to a year. Yeah. So it's almost like they're staying for a year and a day now, mm. and mm. it's become, after that time, it's very hard for them to get away. Yeah, exactly. And it, it is more like sort of the sense of eternity you know yeah. once you've got that completion then it also indicates sort of an, an eternity of three times of three time if you like plus three yeah as i said i'm i, I don't it's not a year in a day mm. but it has that same quality yes, exactly exactly well they're still having a go at Maldon, of course mm. they're just having a they, they can't stop I, I think they feel it's his fault that they can't get yeah. away I, I, I get the feeling they're going, yeah, well, you can't help catching the ball of water because yeah. you really want to stay. Yeah. You're not, it's not really sticky. Yeah. It's just that every time she throws it at you, you catch it yeah. and we're drawn in again mm. because you don't want to go. Yeah, yeah. And so um, Maldon says, well, all right, you know, someone else catch it. Mm. And if it sticks to their hand, well, I suppose you can always cut it. Hand off if yeah. you really want to get away. He's sort of testing them, I think, to see yeah. whether they really mean it. Exactly. And maybe he's just not being serious. Yeah. 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 Well, what do you expect me to do? You know, yeah. if it's, it's sticky, if somebody else catches it, well, if you don't believe me, cut their hand off. Yeah. Uh, but they kind of take him up on that one. Um, and the next time they try to escape, another member of the crew does catch the ball and it does stick to his hand. And Diron, the rhymer, promptly slices off the hand. And that's how they finally escape. And of course, as they're sailing away, there's great weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth from the island of women. <laughs> and poor Metal Doohan, he's been caught by his own words. Really. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, I think this is such an important dialogue. It might be worth just summing up some yeah. of the points that make it so interesting. Yes. Um, well, first of all, it is so clearly and almost archetypally an other world land. Yeah, it's, it really is yeah. an epitome of them, Exactly, isn't it? yeah. No more than Tirnanog, Evanavlach, uh, Brands Island of Women. You know, it's very clear they don't experience age or uh, illness uh, or the sin, uh, the original sin that we've talked about before. So it's very much a, a, a classic place Irish of, other world. Yeah, place of pleasure. Yeah, it's, and again, easy pleasure with no guilt and no, you know, negative you repercussions. would want. Yeah. yeah. But it's here, it's just, I can't get over it, that it's opposite. Mm. That sudden three months felt like three years. Yeah. And you can almost hear the storyteller saying that yeah. and everyone gasping. Yeah. Because you're absolutely expecting three days. Yeah, yeah. And suddenly it was three years. Yeah. And that's quite shocking. Yeah, as we said before, totally the opposite yeah. of what you would expect in the same way that the sticky ball of wool is performing an opposite function. Yeah. It's it's used to keep them there rather than to yeah. let them come. And that idea of mutilation, mm. I mean, the the, uh, the islands are always to do with health and mm. healing and wholeness. Yeah. And now here, to escape from one, mm. you experience mutilation. Yeah. That's um, sort of the almost, opposite required for them to escape. Yeah, and it's almost that sort of self-sacrificing of, well, it's not the self because it's not Diron doing it to himself, but you know that someone has to lose something, yeah. yeah, in order to again, the it's it's almost shocking. Mm. And I mean, here's a piece clearly set in this epic heroic mode, mm. replete with sumptuous hospitality. Oh, yeah. But it's a trap. Yeah, yeah. It's seen as a trap. Mm. We keep talking about transition yeah. pieces and all the improv are sort of like transitions between the. 
pre-Christian and the Christian, yeah. or between the Christian and the Kaila Day. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but this, if I think, is the transition moment par excellence. Yeah. And I, I have also wondered whether there is a, a, a classical or at least a literary influence mm, there. Mm. I mean, there is, you know, this is typical of the Odyssey. Yeah. Find somewhere, escape. Yes, yeah, exactly. Um, or what about the Grail and Galahad, the Grail test yes. to make sure that he is worthy? Can he escape from the women? Exactly. Well, it's, it's done it's, Monty Python at Cat <laughs> Castle Anthrax. It's like, no, I don't need rescuing. I'm fine, thank you. <laughs> it's what comes to mind first of all. Yeah, it? yeah, it Can't is. help it. It is. But it's. I think it. These things come into your mind because it's so obviously an oral piece. Mm. It's meant to be entertaining. It is. Yeah. It's meant to be shocking. Have sudden reversals yeah. and twists. Yeah. And uh, it has, as you said all along, this robust entertaining yeah. quality. Yeah. And and great visuals as well. Yeah. Um, and great smells. Yeah. Smells. <laughs> I was going to say smellules. Really. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's, it is interesting, though, that even though we're starting to find a different attitude towards this other world, that it still has that sort of deathless and sinless um, quality to it that we found uh, in other stories of the other world. Also, there is this sort of slight shift because when we started with Imrolf Bran, his ultimate destination was this island of women and he wanted to get there. And even though he acceded to one of his people's wish to go back to Ireland, he himself made sure that he didn't get caught and made sure he could go back mm -hmm. to this island of perfect, sinless pleasure. Yeah, that's where he was going. Yeah, and we have the same with Nero. He comes back to warn his people, but then he goes back into this mm -hmm. perfect world. So um, what we have, though, in the context of Moyle Dunes Emerald is that it almost feels like this is the furthest out. This is the most alien, the most far out, far west or northeast, whichever way he's going. But the, 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 the most furthest into the other one that he's going to go. Exactly, exactly. And that after this, there's going to be one more island that's very sort of recognisably mythic that you would expect on another world journey. But after that, it sort of feels as though he's returning more to the human yeah. world. And we start hearing islands with lots of long stories. Oh, yeah. And we're always hearing about what other people have done on yeah. their Imrov, which yeah. makes them a little more, the last few, yeah. they're a little more difficult to cover. And we'll they are. We'll get to the next time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But they're also sort of ones that are reminiscent of like the Ikora's last yeah, few yeah. islands, where it's this kind of returning to the familiar world, you know, that this is almost the, the most extreme. People who come from known places. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So I suppose, yeah, it's, I think if you were going to sum this up, you'd say that the visitors were a, a sort of welcoming the pagan hospitality, mm. but then suddenly yearn to escape. Yeah. Do you know what it reminds me of? <laughs> it reminds me of the original generation Star Trek. Yeah. When they keep coming across these wonderful places and they go, no, we cannot be trapped here. It is man's role to go to work. Yes. We cannot live without work. Yes. We must have our mortality. Yes, we must escape from these incredibly sexy women who seem to be throwing <laughs> themselves all over us. No, it's such a terrible torture. Let's go and <laughs> kill sure something. I'm not see Star Trek as, as a version of Mel Twin Oh, times. yeah. Well, absolutely. It's, it's this great trek to the stars finding seeking out new worlds you know yeah and uh, either surviving them running away yeah. or destroying them yeah pretty much <laughs> run away yeah anyway we're, that, that that's I think is as far as we can go today yes because this has already been far too long yeah. if we save the last few for yeah. next time and then and then we'll also have time to get into this um, sort of theoretical interesting approach. theoretical yeah approach which I, actually we're looking forward to yeah it's going to be good fun yeah, we might even find out what's going on. It's always possible. <laughs>
So there's just a couple of points that yeah. hit me during, as we've been talking, yeah. uh, maybe the most important things. I think the first one, we were talk, talking about it earlier, was saying we might even come up with a whole podcast episode yeah. entitled, When is an Imrov Not an Imrov? Yeah, because it, it, it is problematic, sort of, what is it that actually ties these tales together? I mean, this one, Maldon, it seems more like a voyage of exploration than a, a rudderless Imrov. Yeah. I, I, I think it's closer to Invalvina. Yeah. Um... You know, the moment of putting the oars up seems kind of incidental. Yeah, it does. It seems sort of an artificial thing. Um, and it's also, we've been talking about, you know, why are these ones classed as Imrov? And we've mentioned a couple of tales that aren't classed as such and wondering why they're not. Um, but I think that within the group of the four texts that we have called Imrova, they all have very different qualities to them. You know, Imrov Bran was very much the sort of the the old fashioned saga, which is largely poetry, and then has bits and of has prose. some fantastic things to say. Oh yeah, and the poetry is wonderful. And we will come back to that yeah. one because we're coming back to looking at Mongan later. Yes, on, we will because be. he's such an interesting character. Exactly. Here we have a sort of lost messiah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> which <laughs> I think is just worth looking at. Oh, definitely, definitely. So you know, that's sort of the characteristic of Bran. Snegus Amagriegla has its own kind of quirks it seems very much related to the column kill tradition that's the christian one which is like the reasonable lot yeah yeah exactly <laughs> then you got the other sect yeah then with the ikura one. that's the kayla day one. yeah we're now, deep into the kayla day lots of interesting things are said about the kayla day mm-hmm. at the time but i think what you can say about them from what we know yeah. is that they went in for the extreme sport of or the sport of extreme, extreme monasticism. yeah absolutely and then in some ways they're completely mad yeah yeah well i mean all all of that punishment for some thing but also stylistically Ikura we found was very literary oh and the dark night of the soul yeah the deep journey yeah I, I mean yes you had to take it very seriously yeah. it is very serious yeah but I also think that it's a, a fair competitor to Dante's uh, divine comedy yeah. in terms of you know an early literary work which is blending native uh, tradition yeah. with the sort of modern christian learning you know and i think that it had that very sort of authorially constructed it, it was shape quite interesting because we started off looking at it and going, oh no yeah. this is terrible <laughs> yeah you know oh how could they all these punishments it's yeah. appalling yeah. and ended up with a great respect for it yeah. as a, a soul journey exactly yeah yeah that its structure was actually very um consistent and mm. integral and now we have the Imrov Whale Dune and it just feels so oral it's a wonderful yeah. entertaining rollicking piece exactly yeah. that although it's got the Christian elements mm. but they're there in a oh thank god we got away with that yeah exactly or Jesus Mary Joseph yeah. type of thing <laughs> rather than that deeply spiritual yeah, quality yeah. that you find even in Snegus yes but that kind of piety and the piety the, yeah, yeah. the piety of the one and the sanctity of the yeah, other yeah. You know. but this is just a rollicking good tale yes it is and it's just sort of set with in a world that has, you know, partly Christian and partly non-Christian world Because view. that's what it is. Exactly. That's yeah. the world you're living in. Yeah. So that's the world you're going to have fun with. Yeah. And I think I noticed, you know, those, the, the, the runs, the repetitions, yeah. the wonderful dialogue. Dialogue is just I brilliant. mean, I know you've talked about some, mm. but, you know, like that, like some of the Irish that yeah. just really, really brings it alive. That wonderful sort of um, triad, if you like, to express co-rearing where you had, you know, Annoying Chiev, Annoying Chiech, Annoying Hood. You, you can know. hear the storyteller 
her saying it. Yeah, yeah. Or the woman on the bridge. Yeah, when she goes, Avra Regan, well done. You know, she's like, oh yeah, he's wonderful, powerful, that fella. Yeah. You know, and there's loads more. It's just exactly. come to mind. Yeah. The visual, amusing, oh, the quality of the, the pushing spears through the, the, the river. Yeah. And all the salmon falling on top yeah, of them yeah. and covering the island in stinking fish. Exactly. And trying to scramble up this glass bridge but ending up falling back on their arses the whole time. Yeah, you know. or the salmon flap. Yeah, yeah. Stuff that's really going to stick in your yeah, mind. Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't know. And the other thing is, because of these individual islands, mm. you know, doesn't it suggest serial storytelling? I think definitely. I think this is definitely, you know, come along next week to hear how they deal with the hairy hermits. Yeah, you know, yeah. it, it, and I think that it gives the storyteller the freedom to start drawing in other little bits of story that he knows. And I think that's part of what we'll find uh, next time when we're looking at some of the later yeah. islands which contain whole sort of subtales in themselves yeah. you know you get the feeling it's sort of people still want to hear more so it goes okay well, which stories can I bring in yeah oh well there's another one about like, yeah let's say there's oh, a bunch of people yeah. on an island and this is what happened to them you know so yeah it's it's that kind of it really feels like you know, a, yeah, a let's winter keep the series going. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, at least they don't. Let's get into series three and yeah. series four. And, you know. Except, I, I, I would hasten to say, I do not feel this text ever jumps a shark. So uh, no, 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 you're quite right. It, it ends at the right time. There's no shark jumping involved here. Yeah. So. Well, look, we'll finish off the last few. Yeah. But I'm really looking forward to talking about you know you, this this theory of the literary criticism. Exactly. Yeah. And I find that fascinating. It is. It's it's a really good one, and it's a way I think of making sense of some of the weirder islands. But it'll be interesting as well to see. You know, look at it as a piece of literature on one hand and as a piece of storytelling on the other, you know, and that it can be both. Thank you for listening to Ogilvy Nanagas, Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody. For more information or to subscribe, please visit www.storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on the story archaeologists at gmail.com.